Welcome to the Basin Conspiracy. I'm Ineash Brodsky. I'm Stephen Zuber. I'm Jay Sticky. And I'm Matt Freeman. Matt Freeman, welcome Yay. back! Thank you, thank you. <laughs> we love having you here. Everyone is probably familiar with you because we've had you on frequently enough that we will not bother with all the introductions again, except saying you are a very hoopty frood, I believe the term is. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> it, it's been a while since I've used that word, and now I used it twice today because it's just been on my mind. That's uh, a good phrase. Yeah. We are going to talk about things that are slightly related to things we've talked about in the past, but before we do that, <laughs> great leading, right? Uh, before we do that, we're going to talk about the less wrong posts that is our beginning reading that we do Doing every week. that thing we do. Yeah. Again. It's crazy how that happens. Um, I apparently closed my notes, so now I have to reopen them. <laughs> First time stamp of the day. Yep. Didn't get very far. Okay. Who's buzzing Okay. Uh, Our first less wrong post is... Sorry. Our first less wrong post is protein reinforcement and DNA consequentialism, which is integrating a lot of things that we have read from previous posts and setting us up for the knockout post uh, that we'll be talking about second after this. But since it is the setup, we have to go through the setup first. Uh, Let's start out with, it takes hundreds of generations for a simple beneficial mutation to promote itself to universality in a gene pool. Thousands of generations, or even millions, to create complex interdependent machinery. That is some slow learning there. And I believe we were just talking earlier about the uh, attempts to exterminate deers to teach them not to jump in front of cars. Yeah, yeah, we were wondering how how long it would take for deer to uh, evolve to not jump into the road. Um, Or at least not to do their whole deer in the headlights. I mean, a lot of times you just jump into the road. It's stupid. I hit a deer on a motorcycle one time. It was terrifying. Oh, my God. There was a deer on a motorcycle? (laughs) Yeah, man. (laughs) A lot of delinquent deer out there. How did you do? How did the motorcycle do? Fine. Uh, I I was riding pillion, which is the fancy word for on the back. Okay. So the driver... uh, actually like turned and accelerated as the deer was coming toward us so he hit the deer in its hindquarters it f- did a flip over our heads and i got like that bullet time where i saw like i like made eye contact with it I was like no <laughs> i was like why and then it ran away um i don't know if it was injured or not deer seem to sort of be bouncy in that way then again like maybe they just run to go die elsewhere but mm-hmm. we looked and we couldn't find it and the, but it was incredibly terrifying. And the motorcycle didn't go spilling out into the street, it sounds like. Nope. Uh, the driver, like, accelerated at, and at just the right time and hit the tier at just the right spot to to flip it. So is this, like, some master-level motorcycling? Uh, this is a instructor, so... Oh, okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> my instinct would have been to, like, slam the brakes or something, but apparently he didn't. No, I think that's what would have killed you. Like, okay. Because you wouldn't be able to decelerate fast enough, and then you would have hit it at slower speed, and it would have been a collision... Instead Same of a thing. flipping it over you yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> Neat. But uh But yeah. Yeah. S- slow learning <laughs> if you have to kill things off that are that are uh not the way you want it. When your reinforcement learning is murder, that 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 takes a lot of bodies to get through. Uh Eliezer points out that protein computers, also known as brains, and sensors can learn by looking much faster than DNA can learn by mutation and selection. And yet, until very recently, the protein learning machines only learned in narrow, specific domains. Squirrel brains learned to find nut trees, but not to build gliders, as flying squirrel DNA is slowly learning to do. The protein computer learned faster than DNA, but much less generally. I kind of wonder about the selection pressure that causes things to become flying, like, whatever's... Like, there are flying snakes, for example. They do the same thing. Mm. They go to the top of a tree, and then they flatten out and glide. 
But like flying squirrels figured that out. I think various forms of lizard, snake, uh, bat, well, bats, whatever. Well, but whatever bats, bats are properly flying, yeah. yeah. But like proto bat. But other snakes and squirrels didn't. Let's just take a moment to appreciate that spiders can't fly. Big God. Can't some? They can actually... <laughs> they can jump. They can, like, shove some web into the air, and if they're light enough, they can, like, glide around. Oh, yeah, those that. little ones I don't mind. It's more just like I'm glad that I don't have to dodge, like, flying tarantulas. Yeah. Because yeah, I don't good. think I could burn the entire planet down. Aren't but... tarantulas, like, not poisonous, though? They're horrifying. I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah. In they, any case... They can um... throw their little leg hairs at you and sting. Hmm. Like, they're like, you know, those obnoxious cacti where you get, like, the little hair-like bristles in you. It's not very much of a deterrent to a human, but mm-hmm. it's but it is annoying. Being terrifying is a deterrent to me, so <laughs> they're good at that. Yeah. <laughs> I think the most interesting thing about all of this, uh, uh, the fact that all these animals have these incredibly refined, evolved behaviors, is like humans apparently, for hundreds of years of writing philosophy, genuinely believe that we don't have any of these evolved behaviors. <laughs> really? Because they would write. Well, I mean, like they would write as though like we're just we're the animal that reasons, and it's like. Obviously, that's bullshit. Like, like you, you just have to think about it for two seconds. But it seems like this was the mainline philosophy of, you know, like European philosophy. And people also used to think that there was like spontaneous generation. You know, like yeah. grain creates mice. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. We're, we're not really good at being the animal that reasons. No. <laughs> we get there eventually, I guess. So Eliezer points out that the basic evolutionary idiom works through the actual real-world consequences, avoiding the difficulty of having a brain imagine them, because that is really complicationally hard. Naturally, this also misses the efficiency of having a brain imagine consequences. It takes millions of years and billions of dead bodies to build complex machinery in this way. Uh, I, um, I do like his little pull-out quote there in uh, parentheses. If you know how to program, you can verify for yourself that it's easier to build a nut tree mapper than an artificial general intelligence. I would imagine so. Yeah, seeing as we're still working on that second one. Yeah. Uh... But speaking about how um, brains are working, built by by evolution, he points out that one idiom that brain-building DNA seems to have hit on over and over is reinforcement learning, repeating policies similar to previous uh, to policies previously rewarded. If a food contains lots of calories and doesn't make you sick, then eat more foods that have similar tastes. This doesn't require brain to visualize the whole t- chain of digestive causality. Uh, I also like this because uh, we've had you on for at least two GP2 episodes, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that brain building software seems to have hit on is reinforcement learning, mm-hmm. where the same kind of thing happens. They and just kind of try a bunch of stuff, and the ones that work get reinforced. And evolutionary algorithms are... Uh, what do they call it when you uh, use basically fake evolution to iterate over... Uh, Genetic, genetic algorithms yeah right? that's, mm. i guess it is what yeah. it's called so kind of just copying nature yeah trying to do a little faster than nature yeah that, that that's a good point though because this was written in 2007 yeah and that was well before we had all of this more recent evidence that like yes all you actually have to do to get really amazing performance that looks a lot like intelligence and might actually be intelligence is just make make reinforcement learning algorithm bigger yeah. um so that's Eliezer didn't know that but he's on the right track i think it's kind of i don't know fantastic um kind i guess we'll see scary. how it, yeah. yeah yeah how it plays out interesting that that's all it takes to eventually get to uh get to brains mm-hmm. 
Uh, it does say, uh, continuing on here, that it seems much easier for evolution to hit on reinforcement learning than a brain that accurately visualizes the digestive system, let alone a brain that accurately visualizes the reproductive consequences and months later. So, he asks, why not learn to like food based on reproductive success, so that you'll stop liking the taste of candy if it stops leading to reproductive fitness, or reproductive success? Why don't birds wait and see which wing-flapping policies result in more eggs, not just more stability? And the answer is because it takes too long. Reinforcement learning still requires you to wait for the detected consequences before you learn. Yeah, if you're just, hey, what if I just eat spinach and then see how my offspring turn out? Right. Whoops, they didn't survive. <laughs> Let's try nuts. Yeah, like, no. I, I that would be a really bad way to do things. I do like this, this sort of, the reinforcement has to happen very quickly after the, after the, the thing that is being reinforced, I guess, because it's, it, it was. Yeah. Cause you can't tell which, you know, interventions are actually causing the results yeah. that you're seeing. If you're doing a bunch of, I don't know if you're eating multiple foods, for example. I mean, obviously it's how you train dogs. Uh, I don't know about cats never tried to train one, but it has same to way. be same way. Yeah. It has to be the thing you're um, punishing or rewarding them for has to happen very close after the actual action. You can't like, come and see that they got into the trash an hour ago and bring them over and yell at them. I mean, you kind of can. You can, but they don't understand what's going on. They're just like, I'm being yelled at and they're they're gesticulating at the trash can and I don't know what's going on, but and, I feel sad. Yeah, <laughs> I guess the trash can is bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe if that keeps them away from the trash can, but it's not quite the same thing. But I like how this was used as a hack where uh, some people wanted to um, get themselves to do things like chores or productive work more and uh, one thing they would do is like give themselves a little M&M whenever they did the thing as a reinforcement thing since, you know, human bodies like M&Ms. And I think, didn't this actually come up in um, HPMOR? Yes. Okay. He, was, he gave Hermione a bag of chocolates to train her inner pigeon so that she wouldn't be like, uh, have a negative reaction towards seeing him. Eliezer himself actually did that where he had his wife and one other person um, feed him M&Ms when he like said something nice or did a good behavior. <laughs> Cool. Which I I don't know whether that chapter in HPMOR came first or that experiment, but I guess he liked it. I read about the experiment after MOR, but I'm not sure, like temporally, which one came first. Did it work with Eliezer? Yeah, I mean, I imagine that he liked it when he said smart things because he got M and M's. I'm not sure if like it made him say more smart things because okay. that sounds hard to. I think it was reinforcing in. nice behavior. Oh, then maybe yeah. It almost like I want to say that it wouldn't work because you know what you're doing, right? But I guess Still it works. works on a fundament, more fundamental level. Yeah, I believe, uh, God, who was it? Someone did the uh, trigger action protocol thing mm. uh, that whenever uh, a thing wanted... Want... I think that was Brienne, if you're talking was about using the, the... The clicker? Clicker, yeah. Okay, yeah. And uh, apparently eventually got to the point where just doing the clicking motion and hearing the clicking sound was uh, rewarding in itself because... Yeah, I clicker train <laughs> my pets, but it also totally works on humans. There's studies that show, you know... You Even when you're the one the with reward. the clicker. Yeah, you know, like, brains aren't that smart. Fucking brains. <laughs> so the, way, the way this works initially is you use the clicker. So, like, I sit down and actually do my fucking job rather than play on my phone. Mm -hmm. uh, so I give myself an M&M and a click mm -hmm. and do that for a few weeks and then take away the M&Ms, but I still like the clicks. Okay, I'll buy myself a clicker. Yeah, for a while, though, it, it'll attenuate eventually. Yeah, and you have so. to reinforce it as well. Like, you have to, you know, keep associating that with positivity and remembering to like negatively or positively reinforce whatever behavior every time yeah. you do it 
and you'll probably just get cavities after eating uh, <laughs> yeah. M&Ms all day <laughs> every day. Maybe M&Ms aren't yeah. like, like a long-term best way to do that. Maybe if I'm trying to train myself to work, I can just like look at like how I'm not behind on my bills. Like I'll look at like my monthly expenses mm-hmm. and then do a click. Be like, Perfect. <laughs> all right. I, I like my, I like staying in the green. Okay. Yeah. yeah I'll keep doing I, this. <laughs> I, I think the, the, be- the best life hack I have along these lines which sort of comes from meditation is actually just focus on the pleasurable aspects of what you're doing in the moment. And as a corollary, maybe don't focus on the fact that like, Oh, I have to do this. This sucks. Like, like, yeah, like try... just reinforcing the UG field. Yeah. Like try to shut down the negative self-talk and then try to actually cultivate some, some sense of like, you know, I, I, I don't mind doing like this, is, you know, that there, there's things about this that I can like and that I can focus on. And then um, that's, that sort of trains you actually in a, in a subtle way. Apparently, this is also kind of a big thing with criminality theory, where for a long time, if you wanted to discourage something, but it was really hard to catch people, you just made the consequences worse and worse. We're like, you know, if you're doing this thing, that's very rare, but we catch you at it. Uh, we execute you. Mm. And that, that's supposed to be like when people are thinking whether they do this thing or not, the fact that the consequences of being caught are so much worse outweigh the the unlikeliness of being caught. I think that didn't work, right? Yeah, yeah. Apparently, that just doesn't work very well. By far, the the most effective thing for reducing criminality is catching people quickly and punishing them immediately after even if it's just like a light punishment like just maybe a scolding or a weekend in the, in in a drunk tank or whatever just the consistent catching them soon after the fact is the important part it'd be hard to change society to work this way but it'd be funny if like you get caught like I don't know, trying to rob a 7-Eleven and the cop just like slaps you really hard in the face <laughs> and, and that's your punishment. Yeah. As long as you got caught 95% of the time. Right. Yeah, yeah maybe it yeah. would work. I think there are societies that basically work like that. Like, I think that's how hunter-gatherer sort of societies self-police. It kind of argues for, for more... Um, not depending like? on police since they can rarely be yeah, there in time. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And uh, more, yeah, self-defense. Citizens arrest or yeah, right, citizens, right. I guess, slapping you in the face. Yeah. Self-defense protocols. Just, just a light caning <laughs> whenever you find someone doing something you don't like. That's that's why I keep that shotgun underneath my counter. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we talked about Loaded Singapore. Loaded up with the pellets, though. A couple of episodes ago and look at the crime rates in Singapore. Mm. Uh-huh. So, I don't know. Not to, like, throw cold water on your excitement there, but maybe it's, I don't know. Well, Singapore is unique in a lot of ways. Um, Before we move on, I also just wanted to point out, because it kept bugging me that a couple of times it mentions, your brain doesn't have to visualize the whole chain of digestive causality, but before this we were literally just talking about how a bunch of your neurons are in your digestive system. So, that's not actually true. and also there's the fact entirely well, like, not visualizing and, and and have any of you ever had taste aversion or just the phenomenon of like oh yeah. i can't drink rum anymore after that one night oh yeah yeah, yeah like so that's your that's your body learning that that's poison mm-hmm. and and now it just makes you nauseous and disgusted anytime you think about eating it and, and i have i've i've had the same thing with non-alcoholic things that made me that gave me food poisoning was like yeah. i can't eat you know yeah that thing and, and it sucks when you accidentally like i don't know if you get car sick right after you had pizza and then you just have an aversion to pizza and it's like no i don't want to have an aversion to pizza yeah it's just it wasn't causal but, but but that's totally an evolved you know i don't know i don't think reflex is the right word but adaptation Instinct. to get us to not eat things that are that are bad that yeah it's cool uh, we are, at least the last few things I pulled out was when natural selection builds a digestible calorie sensor linked by reinforcement learning to taste, then the DNA itself embodies the implicit belief that calories lead to reproduction. So the brain doesn't have to have that causal chain because the DNA embodies it. Uh, only short-term consequences, which the protein brains can quickly observe and easily learn from, get hooked up to protein learning. 
The DNA builds a protein computer that seeks calories. The protein computer learns which tastes are caloric. But the DNA had better hope that its protein computer never ends up in an environment where calories are bad for it. Or where sexual re- pleasure stops correlating to reproduction. And it trails off and there's a dun-dun-dun sound before the next episode. Wouldn't that be terrible if that happened? It would, man. Can you imagine? I, I can't. I'd need some sort of fiction to help me imagine this sort of crazy scenario. <laughs> Alright, do we have anything else on this before? Now we're leading up into popular post here. Cool. Thou art God Shatter, which is one of the ones that I remembered the uh, the final punchline of it, but I had forgotten how both how well stated and kind of poetic it was along the way. So this... Didn't you do a reading of this one, uh, Inuyash, when you were reading like Less Wrong Posts? Yes, I did. Because I remember hearing it in your voice. So. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I'm glad that well. I'm not just hallucinating that. Yep, that was me. Uh, Thou art God Shadow Shatter starts out with, We have no instinctive revulsion of condoms or oral sex. Our brains, those supreme reproductive organs, don't perform a check for reproductive efficacy before granting us sexual pleasure. Thank God. <laughs> I know, right? I, I like that we have the both ends of the spectrum here. Um, why aren't we consciously obsessed with inclusive genetic fitness? Anybody want to take a stab based on the previous thing we just read? I expect that it would cause neuroticism and society to collapse. Oh, <laughs> just like in that short in, in that short story that, uh, that that we were talking about before we started recording, where, where if we were smart enough to keep track of of the implications of all of our actions, we'd be uh, paralyzed, right? We, or or we would just be psychopathically like favoring people who had our genes and uh, uh, basically at war with people who didn't and just trying to fuck them over all the time. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that would, that would be a, that'd be a drag. <laughs> I, I, I really, I mean that, that short story and this idea in general, I forget the name of the story. Didn't we? Yeah. I was just going to ask. Um, I don't think I know that one. Kin and kinship. I think I, I just kindness to kin. Kindness to kindness kin. Kindness to kin. Yeah. But, but, the, the it's really nice that we can feel warm pro-social brotherly feelings toward people who we barely know and mm-hmm. have nothing to do with us like that's that's a fantastic thing about being human right and that's yeah. uh we'll link to that one too part of god shatter right there yeah. yeah that's something i'd like to keep as part of my neurology we get the well yeah we're getting to it but you know Same if we seems. ever get the ability to crack open our code and edit it yeah i think most humans tend to like that about humanity like that we're able to be empathetic towards other humans and even like pets or mm-hmm. even abstract concepts like nature mm-hmm. but in the context of the last post i'm guessing the reason that we aren't obsessed like this is because the consequences aren't immediate enough. yes uh it is said that when the evolution fairy decides which genes to promote to universality she doesn't seem to take into account anything except the number of copies a gene produces uh so agents created like that would uh have sex or Hold on a sec. Or do anything, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the as, as you guys were just saying, uh, agents who were only uh, interested in reproduction would have sex only as a means of reproduction. Wouldn't bother with sex that included birth control. Could They would eat food out of explicitly reasonable belief that food was necessary to reproduce, not because they liked the taste. Uh, postmenopausal women would babysit grandchildren until they became sick enough to be a net drain on resources and then would commit suicide. It just seems like and men such would line up ob- around the block at the sperm bank. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Like, wouldn't you just kind of jack off all day and still like donate all of the sperm to the sperm bank? <laughs> like, don't even bother with the whole having sex part. It's, it's just so much work. Uh, yeah, right? <laughs> so many calories you could be using to jack off more. <laughs> seems like such an obvious design improvement. 
I just had this mental image of someone running into like the grocery store, like, I gotta eat all the kale! <laughs> Have all the babies eat the kale! <laughs> Is kale good for <laughs> sperm production or I something? Don't know. Oh, okay. Just, like, <laughs> Yeah, they were, like, they were like, yeah, if it was just like, who cares about taste, you know, like, eat the best foods to have the best babies, and just, yeah, imagining, like, people rioting at a grocery store. Give me the oranges! Mm-hmm. <laughs> Drinking all the Powerade. You will have babies! <laughs> I don't know if Powerade is good for reproductive fitness, but <laughs> maybe it gives you the energy. It's good, for, sec- it's good for, for sexual endurance, you know, anyway. after that fifth or sixth time of the day, you need some electrolytes, you know, right, yeah. to rehydrate. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, DNA constructs protein brains with reward signals that have a long-distance correlation to reproductive fitness, but a short-distance correlation to organism behavior, which was what the last post was basically about. You don't have to figure out that eating sugary food in the fall will lead to digesting calories that can be stored fat to help you survive the winter so that you can mate in spring to produce offspring in summer. An An apple simply tastes good, and your brain has to plot out how to get more apples off the tree. And so, when hominid brains capable of cross-domain consequential reasoning began to show up, they reasoned consequentially about how to get the existing reinforcers. It was a relatively simple hack, vastly simpler than rebuilding an inclusive fitness maximizer from scratch. The protein brains plotted how to acquire calories and sex, without any explicit cognitive representation of inclusive fitness, quote-unquote. So, yeah, basically we, we kept going after what we had been programmed to go after because we had been programmed to go after the things that include, that reproduced, increased our reproductive fitness. Yes. Or things that looked like it. Yeah. Even if they, that doesn't apply anymore in the modern environment. So Eliezer says that uh, the blind idiot god is purely obsessed with inclusive genetic fitness. No quality is valued, not even survival, except insofar as it increases reproductive fitness. There's no point in an organism with steel skin if it ends up having 1% less reproductive capacity, which is fucking depressing as hell. But there guess... are other reasons that it's hard to evolve steel skin. Well, yes, but <laughs> if it didn't increase your reproductive fitness, it, it wouldn't happen. Uh, and yet, when the blind idiot god created protein computers, its monomaniacal focus on inclusive genetic fitness was not faithfully transmitted. We are as alien to evolution as our maker is alien to us. One pure utility function splintered into a thousand shards of desire. That's so poetic. Yeah. The one pure utility function being have more grandkids and the thousand shards of desire being things like get calories, eat that apple, eat or an orange. make art. Or make art even, yeah, yeah. Like, enjoy a sunset. Right. As the token kid haver mm. on the podcast, <laughs> I, I, I do think it is amazing how, yes, there, there are so many ways that we can have satisfaction that don't have to do with reproduction and yet evolution still manages to give the average american like roughly a a, a, a even reproduction rate of you know two offspring per per person or or whatever it is i'm not Mm -hmm. expressing that correctly but the the point is like still the blind idiot god has found a way to manipulate us into doing that um very successfully i mean like it makes us party in our 20s and then like when I was at the Slate Star Codex meetup with a bunch of other like late twenty, like early thirty somethings, and there's one person there that had a little kid that was walking around being adorable, and we were all like, "Oh God, the baby fever is real." <laughs> cool. So, and I've also heard it is extremely um, satisfying. What is the term for life? Fulfilling, fulfilling. Yes, I, I don't know. Can you 
verify uh, oh, oh yeah i i think it's <laughs> i think it's great um and, and, I, and i always uh, uh shill for having kids and i think i think rationalists should, ha- should have more kids but like the thing is i didn't know that before i had kids it was literally just you know my programming mm-hmm. my my god shatter programming that, that led me into that because i couldn't have known in advance if it was going to be great for a certainty um so was it an actual desire to have kids um not not really no mm-hmm. it, it was it you were was... just having sex and kids happened uh, I mean, um, I think it was, it was like, yeah, like, um, that's what, that's what you do. Okay. You know, that was, it was, uh, it was a cultural meme, I guess I'll say. Yeah. Mostly. Yeah. Um, well, cultures without that meme probably didn't have quite as many kids <laughs> and didn't make it this far. That's true. Yeah. Trying to make that a rationalist cultural I meme. I was going to say, like, that's know, kind of right? the culture we're in right now. We're trying to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. Remember, what was it? The shakers? It was the shakers that had the opposite meme. No mm-hmm. one should have kids. And now there's no more shakers. Yeah. That's a, that's a problem in the long term. Uh, yeah. So humans love the taste of sugar and fat, and we love our sons and daughters. We seek social status and sex. We sing and dance and play. We learn for the love of learning. A thousand delicious tastes, tastes matched to ancient reinforcers that once correlated with reproductive fitness. Now sought whether or not they enhance reproduction. Sex with birth control. Chocolate. The music of long dead Bach on a CD. <laughs> What's a CD? <laughs> <laughs> it's this post so old, man. I, I I found it striking that he included uh, that last one there though, which is why I pulled this out because I guess I guess the point of making music was to get laid a lot, and now that he's dead, it's not helping anybody to listen to his music still. And yet, it's a like, genetic meme kind of like you know as you've mentioned that you know like passing on your uh, your memes instead of your genes. Yes, I have. I think the Bach thing is is there with chocolate and sex with birth control, not because. It has anything to do with box fitness. It has to do with the things we enjoy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, like, originally, pe- people, you know, I'm sure a thousand guitar sales a year are because the guy buying it is like, this will help get me laid. And the remaining 95% of guitar sales are because music is audible chocolate. Yeah. yeah. And it's a uh, auditory super stimulus, right? But the idea is that it's auditory chocolate because the people producing music would have more grandchildren. I don't know about that. Uh, necess- I mean, I that's got to be a part of the recipe but i think that the, it's just uh, your conscious choice to buy a guitar is usually like divorced from that right, <laughs> like right. several steps i mean yeah. like it, you might be a guitar guy playing wonderwall in like city park trying to tell on tricks but most people aren't most people like learn to play an instrument because they enjoy music <laughs> the same reason when i go buy a chocolate bar i'm not doing it to get laid or to like whatever increase my caloric intake so that i might survive long enough to reproduce i'm doing it because it tastes good right yeah. I- I think it's it's a it's a matter of these things being correlated, um, regardless of whether they're intentional. So so like I mean j- just to just to go there, um, Eliezer, the, like the first thing he mentions here is is oral sex basically, and I'm like, I'm pretty sure that it, if you're in a situation where you're having oral sex, then you're closer to a situation where you're having procreative sex than if you weren't having oral sex. So, like, proximally speaking, we haven't evolved to be repulsed by oral sex because it's generally on the pathway to procreative sex. If oral sex were actually something that people just decided to do all the time instead of having procreative sex, then we probably would have evolved to find it repelling. Ah, you know? That's a good point. If it was a substitute as opposed to a a complementary good? Yeah, it's just... I I would guess that it tends to be more of a a thing that, that leads to... That has been I my experience. We don't <laughs> have to guess. Uh, there's various animal species that also do oral sex, and they tend to also be like ones that have familial ties and social like 
communal mm-hmm. type cultures whereas like insects definitely don't <laughs> mm-hmm. like, like reptiles don't you know mm-hmm. bats do <laughs> they live in colonies interesting i didn't know that yeah. anyway <laughs> so the uh the way i ended this is i pulled out a few things from the final paragraphs it's not actually quite the way he did it but but if you want to hear the whole thing anyhow has recorded it <laughs> exactly i have and it is linked so you can listen to it uh but he more or less ends with um saying that this is a good thing like what would we do with the future what would we do with the billions of galaxies in the night sky fill them with maximally efficient replicators should our descendants deliberately obsess about maximizing their inclusive genetic fitness regarding all else only as a means to that end? Being a thousand shards of desire isn't always fun, but at least it's not boring. When we finally learn about evolution, we think to ourselves, obsess all day about inclusive genetic fitness. Where's the fun in that? Because, yeah, fuck, fuck that. That's interesting, kind of, in what that has to say about our concern that creating agi is going to lead to paperclip maximizers because mm-hmm. we could easily we could just as easily be paperclip maximizers yeah but what would not because it's probably complicated it's probably a little less likely that it would be just a monomaniacal paperclip maximizer now that we're using reinforcement learning but it might be doing things like the equivalent of you know storing up apples and playing lots of music and humans aren't needed for that necessarily yeah like it may have a thousand shards of desire as well but if none of them include humans being alive that still sucks for us I feel like it makes me less concerned about a paperclip maximizer or the other failure modes. It's at least less horrifying than a paperclip maximizer. Well, I mean, just because like we've seen the way that we have our one example of sentient consciousness arising from what was a paperclip ma- maximizer originally, mm-hmm. you know, a uh, maximally efficient replicator. Mm-hmm. And we turned out okay-ish. <laughs> like, I don't know, just makes me a little bit less worried that... That's yeah. sort of like the normal end result of a mind. Even, yeah, even if humans were wiped out, a universe with baby-eating aliens and super happies is better than a universe with a maximally efficient reproductive thing. Because they just, they seem slightly more human in that they have multiple competing goals and drives and stuff. It's also kind of, I mean, it. I have complicated feelings about it because it's like, it's. I'm having a hard time even articulating this. It, I guess it's sort of very subjective whether a paperclip maximizer is better or worse than something that makes art like we think that things like us are cool because we're like us yeah yeah. (laughs) but like it's not like it's morally better somehow or uh aesthetically better except for subjectively but then again like that's sort of where you have to just end the philosophical argument i think i mean i think all those things are just subjective right yeah i remember like when i was like a tween i read like i think a new york times article that was suggesting that we create art because of, you know, inclusive genetic fitness. Mm-hmm. It's like, art's all about, you know, having sex and reproducing more. Mm-hmm. And I got really depressed after reading that for a little bit because I wanted to be an artist at the time and I did, in fact, get an art degree later. But it's just like, oh, man, it's all it's all for nothing. You know, like art and music and science. It's not for science. nothing. It's for getting laid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I don't know, it's just like, oh, it's, it's it makes it seem so vulgar and like, you know, you like to think of it as if it's the, the same thing as you know the unweaving the rainbow yeah. understanding how the rainbow works doesn't mean it's not cool anymore and eventually i kind of was just like i seem to still enjoy consuming and creating art regardless of knowing that it had these like deeper roots in trying to get my ancestors laid so whatever yeah <laughs> i do you think that that a artificial general intelligence with a coherent utility function would end up being more like a paperclip maximizer than like a human I think it wouldn't have a coherent utility function. Like, 
we already don't understand what the heck GPT-3 is doing. Right. Is that good? And like, Or scary? What do you mean by coherent anyway? Because it's like, does that mean we can understand it or that it can understand itself? Because we also don't understand ourselves. In theory, our... Well, it's not our utility function to want genetic and reproductive success. I mean, humans aren't legible. That's what we're trying to figure out so we can like try to figure out how to reverse engineer friendly AI, right? I don't know. Do we want to we haven't solved become that, that yet, legible? Right? <laughs> Maybe because like this is already like a step in the direction of legibility. And I feel like my reaction, once again, is to be kind of sad about it at first. Like, oh, it's like, you know, it doesn't have a grand meaning or a greater purpose. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, but so what? <laughs> like does that change anything about the experience or you know like make me want to become a nihilist and go like murder a bunch of babies because nothing matters nope so whatever you know made you depressed for a while i I think we're i think we're accidentally straying into the topic of today's conversation actually i I don't think it's accidental (laughs) (laughs) i I was trying to uh because (laughs) pushes in that direction Um, because i think they are related yeah uh, well i think it's very much related i mean and and I, i i would say that um, to, if if we're gonna say that a, that a human being has anything that looks like a utility function, then it's it, you can you can hardly I don't think you can make it any simpler than just like that whole person and what they think about every possible situation. Like you, if you if you shave off any part of that, then it's no longer that person's utility valuation, utility function. If 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 you if you must use that term, but I, I don't think it <laughs> really works for humans. <laughs> yeah, well, well, that's the thing is it's like function implies mathematically uh, uh, some kind of operator where you give it an input and it and it deterministically produces an output. And it's like, well, that's not at all how we live our lives or, or you know, exist from moment to moment. And in fact, like with every moment we change. And so I think it might be, though, if we just we can't see into the box to determine what the map is. So it doesn't feel deterministic. But isn't it deterministic that if you were to take you in right now, freeze you and fight? Fi- feed you a certain um, string of inputs, like Groundhog Day style, every single time you would get the same response out? Uh, yes. So so I, I agree with that. It, it's just that's not particularly a useful idea for, for me to think about how I, how I actually live my life in a practical sense, I guess is what I would say. Um, but it is useful in the terms of thinking about if we're going to create a god from scratch, that it's important to make sure the output isn't hostile to human life. Uh, that's certainly the way that that everybody talks about it. Um, because, you don't think so, though. Well, I I don't know. I I think that it is a bit limiting to to speak in the language of of the AI having some kind of of simple utility function. I think it's just a, a phrasing that I see people use all the time. Obviously, um, that I think sort of hides papers over like the actual problem. Mm-hmm. Um, because the way I was taught to think about utility theory in general in graduate school, uh, and people have told me that this is kind of a non-standard way of thinking about it, but I think that this is a better way of thinking have about it Have rationalists still do this or like regular people? Yeah, r- 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 <laughs> well, well rationalists have. Well, here's the thing. A lot of rationalists learn about utility theory from lesswrong.com. Yeah. And I'm like, that's a non-standard way of learning about utility, okay? Like like the, the way I learned about it was like in industrial say, engineering. If you, yeah, if you, went to, if you have a graduate degree, you probably like... Yeah, actually learned the the more standard way of understanding it. So, like the way I think about it is just like you have a specific problem you're thinking about, where you have a set of possible outcomes for this situation, and you ask yourself 
you know, maybe you're speaking on behalf of your actual self. Maybe you're speaking on behalf of like your company. And you ask yourself, which of these options is the most preferable? Which of them is least preferable? Which of these options is in the middle in terms of, of preferability? And then you evaluate, okay, well, you know, how, in a relative sense, how much more preferable, how much less preferable? And you end up with a number that gives you a sense of, of your, your you know, not, not just your ranking of the outcomes, but your, your numerical weighting of the outcomes in, in terms of preference. And, um, and that's your utility evalu evaluation over the outcomes. And um, it seems to me a kind of uh, weird, like, inversion of the problem to say, like, ah, so what you've done is you, you've written down your utility function. I'm like, well, no, I, I, I just specified my valuations of these specific outcomes. You would be making inferences if you, if you then went on to, to make any sort of conclusions about other things that are outside of this set of, of outcomes. Interesting. Um, and and maybe maybe making inferences is um appropriate in in specific situations but like you can't take you know if i'm like going to buy a car and i and i have my, like my utility valuation of of various different options for the car and different makes and models and is it a stick shift does it have a sunroof and so on um you there's that says nothing about like what kind of fruit is my favorite fruit it's just not even the same thing, right? So, so the way I was taught about utility is like it's this thing that's that's useful when you apply it to narrow domains and um, uh, very difficult—not impossible, but very difficult to extend across different domains. Um, and so it gets it gets really immediately super confusing and abstract when people start talking about AIs having utility functions because I'm like, so what you're going to code like what kind of like does the AI like a sunroof versus versus a stick shift? Like, is this something favorite flavor of pie? Yeah. yeah. Like, like how is this going to work practically speaking? I think that's. <laughs> I think that is an extremely hard problem, and that is the fear that the why why the, all the work is being put into it. Let's uh, quickly actually pivot right into the thing where I can introduce what we're doing right now. Okay. Okay. Even but though first, we started, we gotta say what the next week's posts are. Oh shit! You're right. Okay. <laughs> uh, I can grab that once I find notes again. All right, next next episode, terminal values and instrumental values and evolving to extinction. Excellent. A lot of these seem to be running on a theme lately. That's probably not an accident. That is, it's never an accident. I think this is the evolutionary biology uh, section of the sequences. Yeah. Uh, but what we are talking about is uh, decision theory, more or less. The reason we are here today. What brings us together today is uh, the, <laughs> the fact that we did the Newcomb's Problem uh, things earlier, and we're not going to revisit that because we are done with that. However, in the Discord, uh, Matt jumped in when we were talking about this and said, well, let me just see. I want to gripe that the reason I felt compelled to teach a decision theory course in the Guild of the Rose is that Less Wrong has this tradition of talking about multi-agent Newcomb-like problems and a causal decision theory while neglecting, and often getting wrong, the basics of fundamental, basic, boring decision theory 101 stuff. And uh, we should say quickly that Matt is, you know, one of the instructors in the Guild of the Rose, one of the co-founders, in fact, of Guild of the Rose. And we had you on talking about it a few episodes ago. So you have now done at least um, one instruction session, I guess. What do you call the, the arc? Yeah, it was a course. Course. You know, so so it was a five-week five um course in 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 decision theory and it was it, the course is, is titled practical decision theory specifically like i said in, in that comment there like i was um I, 
I was like, man, everybody, everybody, to be a, a, a bit, you know, blunt, thinks they're an expert on decision theory because because it, it it's fun to pontificate about these esoteric decision problems that are just there that are really quite as as I think Stephen was complaining, like very artificial and like not connected to reality. Um, Vindication. <laughs> yeah, and, and and I'm like, look, like like this is actually useful stuff, um, and like. And so the point of the course was to teach like how to actually use it. And I was actually very gratified by by how the course went because um, basically the arc of the course was week to week, we would learn sort of a, a different a, a different subskill on the way to building a decision tree. Um, Jace actually uh, took the course and and, yes. and, 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 and watched uh, the, the content and so forth. So, so he can verify whether I'm I'm talking on my ass or not. No, but, I, I wrote I think a glowing review uh, on Discord. Of, yes, like I actually felt like this was already something that I kind of had in the bag. I mean, I I like it, so I was like excited to do it again. Uh, but like Matt's, uh, you know, grad school like take on decision theory was it helped me just build a more complete like mental model of what's going on in decision theory and sort of approach it from some new angles that I hadn't thought of. So, um, yeah, I think it was like really graspable also, which, uh, it's, it's really hard to do. So today we are here to talk about decision theory. And I guess the first thing I wanted to know is Matt, what is decision theory then? Um, that's a, that's a fantastic question. <laughs> no, I, I, I just see it as, um, the, the mathematical rules and heuristics that, uh, lead to making consistently good decisions, um, where each word in that phrase sort of has a, a, a special technical definition. Oh shit! Um, I mean, like, like so. For example, like this is a thing that many people will, will immediately come back with if you if they say like, oh yeah, well, what if somebody buys a lottery ticket and then they win the lottery? Wasn't that a good decision? No, that was a bad. Decision. It's like no, it's a, it's it's a bad decision because in expectation they would have expected to lose money. So it was a good outcome, mm -hmm. but it was a good outcome because they were lucky. And and in fact, you can lose, uh, you know, at, at a particular thing and have that still have been a good decision because in, in expectation, it was um, supposed to, on average, in a statistical sense, give you a positive return. And there's all kinds of nuances here because it's like, well, probably don't want to play any games where like death is, is a, you know, a, an outcome because it's no like... Russian roulette. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, there's like a, um, what's, I forget the exact word that goes along with this, but like you probably, you, you want to only play games where uh, none of the outcomes are, are horribly ruinous for you um, or else you have to start thinking in a, in a different way about these things. But um, generally speaking, yeah, just, just rules for consistency and, um, more than just consistent decision making, even like consistent thinking, because, um, for example, one of the requirements is that you have um, consistent preferences, meaning like if you're going to buy a car that you, you know, you don't prefer a red car to a blue car and a blue car to a green car and a green car to a red car, um, which in the loop and, and get in a loop, which that's a that's a more obvious example. But there are there are all kinds of examples where human beings get into loops actually in, in reality. And so do you have one? off the top of your head um well i, I think it's the, the occasion when you would run into this is more like uh uh like let's say let's say you want to stay at a, at a hotel on a trip or something and and there are three hotels you could stay at and each of them has something you really like about it 
and you just find yourself looping through them in your head. And, 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 and it's not even necessarily that you prefer A to B and B to C and C to A. It's that you just... Yeah, this one's cheaper, but this one's fancier. Yeah. But this one's closer to the event I'm trying to get to. Thank you, yes. So they're all equally good. Yeah, so they all have different things about them that are good. And, and, that, and, and so this is actually like one of the first exercises in the course that I did was like you, you break things down into like, okay, if, if you are indecisive about a thing, then break down what are the specific things that you keep returning to in your mind like and, and, and like jace just said like those you know that's three totally plausible things you could be worried about and then once you've done that then you can map it out and uh and disambiguate it and then you can figure like okay all things considered i probably do value being able to walk to the to the venue or whatever more than those other things and then once you kind of realize that it can really clarify the decision before you've even gone any further you've you've just broken the loop um or broken the ambiguity perhaps um so that's the kind of thing where it's like we're not talking about uh, Omega. There's no boxes full of cash. <laughs> it's it's simply like like hey, maybe as a habit, notice that when you are conflicted or or or, or, or losing sleep over a decision, just make a habit of uh, breaking that down into like, well, what am I vacillating between? Like, okay, on the one hand, walking distance. On the other hand, comfort or whatever. Okay, let me think about it. Which of these things do I care about more? And the course, good. And you feel that the way decision theory is presented in less wrong and these other kind of esoteric forms skips over that or doesn't address it or just does a bad job in general? I don't see the instrumental version of it that often, uh, except for like I've, you know, talked up clear thinking's, uh, or I think it's called clear thinking, uh, the decision advisor. Yeah, the decision advisor tool. I've, I've mentioned that mm -hmm. one before, but it's not like widely known uh i feel like i'm usually like when i'm hanging out with new rationalists and i bring that up uh, i rarely has anyone else even heard of it which is sad mm -hmm. and then like outside of that yeah matt's course is the first time i think i've really seen the, a practical use guide for this I, I think there's a lack of sort of trigger action plan in people's brains for like i am currently experiencing conflict over decision i should i should focus on this uh, because I mean, one thing that I that I realized during the course again, this is the thing I was like most happy about, most gratified by, is like I had like thirty something people, maybe more than that, and I was like, all right, we're all going to make a decision tree for for a real decision that you're really facing in your real life, and we're going to spend five weeks building the decision tree, basically, for each part of it independently, and then we're going to put it all together at the end. And probably two thirds of those people had some important decision in their life that and and as i was like sitting in the sessions with them they'd be like wow this really helped clarify things for me this really helped me make this decision and i was like fuck yes like validation that this is actually useful but it's just an observation that people are most people i think are walking around with some kind of looming decision in their life that they're not maybe not even aware that that's that, that they have it they're just there's just something that they're putting off thinking about you know and forcing them even to just say like pick something and and use this tool on it, and then it, it, it resolves a lot of kind of just latent anxiety. Um, so the fact that, yeah, anyway, people don't have a, a, pr a program that says, like, oh, I noticed that I'm conflicted. I need to apply these tools. Yeah. That's awesome. I, d I think there is a lot of value out of just having it as an exercise. Yeah, find something. Mm -hmm. Because I think you're right that a lot of people have a background thing in their mind that until someone else points a flashlight at it and says, is this a thing you're uncertain about that you're trying to resolve? They're like, oh, yeah, I guess it is, right? Like if you're unhappy at your job, that might just be like a vibe, right? And you're just the idea of like, should I change jobs hasn't even really occurred to you yet, right? Yeah, right. Or how can I make my job less terrible? Like yeah. Without change, I don't know, maybe like switch to a different position at your job or 
all kinds for of a higher things. salary or yeah, yeah. like mo- get your desk moved away from the obnoxious coworker. <laughs> I'm I'm not going to use the term orthogonal because I don't want to be pretentious, but <laughs> do you think this is unrelated to what less wrong is trying to do? Um because they seem like they might just be trying to address two different things entirely here. I, I think I think you're right. I mean, to, to actually answer the question you asked a second ago, like like what is the mistake that that Less Wrong is making? I mean, I think it's literally that they're talking about um, de- decision theory as you would implement it inside of an AI. Like that that's some of the pushback that I got on that for that Discord comment that I made is is people saying like I thought decision theory was just for AI, and it's like well that's certainly the way we've come to talk about it. And but like it can that, be for I too. It can be for I, <laughs> indeed, um, uh, and and indeed I think was developed for humans to, to use. And it's only you know relatively lately that we've started thinking like, well, we need some way of instantiating um, a a understandable method of decision making inside of our AIs. And here we have these tools of decision theory, so let's plug it in. And then we get into all these debates about like, well, are we going to use, you know, if you use evidential decision theory, then they're they're prey to uh, Parfit Hitchhiker. And it's like, yeah, well, okay, first of all, humans don't use any of these decision theories. Like we don't use evidential decision theory. We don't use functional decision theory. These are abstract idealizations. Uh, this is homo economicus, basically. Yeah, this is homo economicus stuff. Um, I, I, like... I'm not even sure that anyone is seriously trying to build an AI that has a decision theory. How else would it decide between two different courses of action it could take? I think they're at the philosophical stage right now of still like writing papers and just trying to figure out how this works all the way down in human brains. But right, but isn't they're not building it yet? No, 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 to my knowledge, no, no, of Um, course not. At least as far as I know. But isn't any agent that has two different actions they can take? have to implement something like a decision theory to choose between them unless they're using random well, well so what you know for example uh if you look at something like um, um uh, uh, the starcraft ai mm. um i believe that the the decision making method that that ai uses is something called either q learning or, or like policy learning is the more advanced form of that but basically all, like what it's doing is it's learning like in in a situation that looks like this situation that i'm looking at right now what was historically the action that i took that resulted in the mo- in the best uh outcome in some statistically weighted sense and so it's it, like I- implicit in that that they're they're like scoring they're scoring uh during the learning phase they like scored the outcomes and they're like okay well i won this game so like and and you know so 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 all of the all of the things that led the, to these decisions are going to be upweighted a bit. Mm-hmm. All right, okay, I lost this game, so all of these decisions are going to be downweighted a bit. And there's some more fancy stuff in there where things are given kind of more. I'm not Wait. expert enough to talk about it, but things are given more weight based on like like proxy goals in some cases. Um, but it's but still like reinforcement learning, right? It, it, it's Towards all a specific goal. It's 100 percent reinforcement learning. So that's the thing is you end up when you know when the StarCraft AI is playing in a tournament versus a human, they're they're literally just asking themselves um, to anthropomorph- anthropomorphize a bit. They're asking themselves like, okay, which which action is the one that in the past statistically has led to the most success? And they're like, all right, well, probably doing this thing where I build a bunch of stalkers and juggle the stalkers. Um, and that's not any of these decision theories. Okay. That's That's a learned neural network function, basically. Isn't a decision theory an attempt to abstract that sort of learning into more general rules? Um, yeah, I think that's a fair way of describing it. Okay. I, 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 I don't even think I'm like objecting to the 
to the way that that less wrong folks tend to talk about it. It's just I think it's worth emphasizing that when people are talking about like functional decision theory, this is a like you just said, this is a very like abstracted, simplified way of of thinking about this problem for the purposes of doing some kind of mathematical analysis on it, not because anybody's ever going to actually use this. Okay, um, that's how I would that's how I would frame it. And I, I like that framing a lot. I mean the the hotel example was already way more valuable to me than the three hours you spend on Newcomb problems. And, oh, <laughs> but me, less fun, right? Well, We didn't uh, have three hours to talk about hotel no, no, problems because it saying, was boring. I don't regret the time that we spent on it. It was a good time. <laughs> but as far as like just useful application to my life, right? Yeah. Relate, um, relatableness. Right. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Shoot, I had something else for this. Um, it's, it's like a... You know, Socratically masturbating about like what is justice can be really fun for a couple of hours. But if you if you're gonna sit there and and trying to get this perfect, you know, applicable to everything, abstract uh, understanding of it, is that really necessary? If you're trying to figure out like whether or not to pay the cab driver, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like probably not. I don't. I don't think. I don't think you need what does a Socrates fully... say about how you should tip. Right. Uh, <laughs> Never more than ten percent. They just? get too greedy then. <laughs> I, I don't like so. I, I don't think that you need a a fully abstractable and generalizable uh, tool to just like solve your day to day problems. Right. And by they, I meant the employers. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. No. I that that is a darn good point. You guys. So you've both now. Um. By both, there's three of us. Uh. Stephen and Matt have both uh brought up the cab driver parfits hitchhiker kind of thing, mm. and I just wanted to pull out that exact quote in here because I have it in front of me and I like it. Uh, you said uh, way back in the beginning of the month, Parfit's Hitchhiker is especially funny because literally every time you ride in a taxi, you could just jump out of the taxi and run when the ride is over and almost certainly get away scot-free. Same exact scenario fundamentally. Is it the same exact scenario fundamentally? Well, there's the absence of the fact that you would like literally die if yeah. the cab driver didn't pick you up. But what about like Dine and Dash? Dine and Dash is another thing where yeah you you could totally do it you you could do it you get blacklisted at restaurants and probably get in trouble eventually but like like, even if you even if you're just driving through you know middle of nowhere midwest Mm -hmm. like most people still don't dine and dash on their road trip across the country even if they never plan on visiting the state again right and i mean yes yeah you are correct i think isn't that a very good example of decision theories that work then because a good decision theory would prevent you from jumping out and running because it's better effects overall over the long term. Yeah, well, so so what I did in, in the chat there was I proceeded to literally make an actual decision tree in Excel mm-hmm. where I was like, look, this is how you, this is like how a human, to the extent that a human is doing anything like decision theory, this is what a human is really doing is they're saying, all right, I could just jump out of this cab and run and probably get away and I would save $8, but then I would feel really bad about it and maybe be anxious about the idea that there would be consequences to this. Um, and then they evaluate, you know what? I think not feeling bad about this is worth about $8 to me. And we're actually making that calculation every time we decide not to shoplift and every, every time we decide not to dine and dash, we're, we're, we're just, we're reaffirming like it's worth it to me not to worry about this and think that I'm a bad person who steals and et cetera, et cetera. Like there's a, there's a waiting mm-hmm. you could call it a utility function. You could say that the utility of $8 is worth less to me than the utility of being the kind of person who would jump out of a cab and run. I think those are 
those are different though because one is like you said more of a utility function what you actually want whereas decision theory would tell you why doing those things is a bad idea in general and hopefully you are well um socialized so that good decision theories are integrated into your utility function so that the thing your decision the thing a good decision theory would tell you to do is matches up with your utility function and so not following the decision theory makes you feel things like regret and anxiety and stuff and so you keep to it but i don't think they're necessarily the same thing at all like the reason a decision theory tells you to uh pay your cab driver and pay off parfit's hitchhiker has nothing to do with you would feel bad if you didn't um so yeah this was another thing that came up during the the discord discussion actually was was the idea of like specifying where the kind of bounding box that contains the utility function part is versus the decision theory part and um and so like i i pulled up right here the definition of functional decision theory which is Eliezer's pet decision theory as far as i know or or there's also timeless decision theory which i think is related maybe the same maybe they just renamed it but so so the the definition of functional decision theory is very very simple it's it's a decision theory uh described by Eliezer Yudkowsky and Nate Soares which says that agents should treat one's decision as the output of a fixed mathematical function that answers the question which output of this very function would yield the best outcome? That that is completely separate from what the utility function actually is, because the 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 um, the best outcome is literally just what do you think the best outcome is? If you like pain, if you like <laughs> physical pain, which some people do, mm-hmm. um, your best outcome is going to look different from mine, and and so the the the, the action that you take is going to be very different, and mm-hmm. so. It's it's the part of the decision theory that is just the decision theory just dictates like well which 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 option are you going to take um, in in pursuit of these goals that are defined by your utility function I'm doing air quotes because I, I yeah of... no I I think uh, I really agree that it doesn't really make much sense it's not very practical to use terms like utility function when you're talking about humans or even a mind even a simple mind because you don't, I don't know, if you're the StarCraft bot, then your, you know, your utility function is win StarCraft, and then yeah. maybe, like, some other sub-goals, but if you're a human... Kill all humans. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of values that, there's a lot of stuff that is trickling from the top down that affect your decisions. You don't have a utility function. If you're trying to decide which hotel you stay at, you know, it's not like, I am time maximizer, this one would be the fastest to let me walk to the thing that is my utility function like it's you know you're weighing a bunch of do we want to swap out the term care about do we want to swap out the term preferences yeah for utility function I, I, honestly yeah yeah i i, I, I literally <laughs> just talk about preferences and preference ordering and and you could even say preference weighting and then then avoid using the term utility entirely which is kind of how i prefer to think about it actually so it seems to me you're thinking about decision theories as something much more small and local confined to individual actions as opposed to I was trying to think of them more along the terms of decision theories would include um, judgments on what preferences would be best to have or to encourage in far, as far as they are malleable. Like a decision theory should take into account how this action is going to uh, impact the rest of society and the world you have to live in. Can I jump on that yeah. for a sec? I think that it can be personal or it can be, like you mentioned, your business you can be deciding for all of society if you want. It doesn't have to be small and narrow or large in scope. 
it's just like I think the if, decisions that you're making for whichever entity. Are... <laughs> I think if the decision theory doesn't take into account the fact that by doing this thing, you're making society more lawless and making your own life worse in the long term, then it's not a good enough decision theory, maybe? Well, I think that that would... Um, th I think that's a, that's an incredibly fascinating statement, actually. And I, th I think it sort of highlights the degree to which we tend to talk about these things in a very simplistic way. Um, let, let me let's talk about the Starcraft as, as an example of this because it's it's like a it's literally a toy problem, mm -hmm. but but cl complex enough that it's interesting to think about because you can you can be like all right um, as a human who plays Starcraft if my goal is to win the game my goal is also to win every fight my goal is also to have successful um, mineral line uh, raids my goal is also to uh, have a bigger economy than my opponent i have a bunch of what we call instrumental goals you know that, that are that are between us and the victory and of course we can also acknowledge like hey you know what if you might not actually need to have a bigger economy than your opponent because you might just rush them and win immediately and and uh uh so like that's you that... might have a preferred strategy you, I mean, yeah, you could, sure, you, you could have a preferred strategy or you could just have a like a, a probabilistic like set of, of various strategies that you could use based on what you see your opponent doing. But this this I see as being related to what Enos is talking about because it's like, um, what, what, what do we want in like the big uh, philosophical sense? What do we want? Like, do we, do we want eudaimonia for all living beings? Kind of, I kind of want that. Um, that's, I never think about that though. Right. I, I mean, I think definitely think about that less than I think about like winning whatever Starcraft game I'm playing at the time. Yeah. <laughs> I think if... thinking like that all the time can be really paralytic too. Like if you are just grocery shopping, I've even run into the whole, you know, is this sustainable? Is this right. ethically sourced? Uh, there's a point where you can't always be thinking about is is this one decision that i'm making like how is this going to benefit or impact all of humanity when you're like deciding between two brands of chocolate bar mm -hmm. <laughs> how would you ever enjoy sex if you're thinking about that all the time yeah and, and that's 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 a very so another thing i think is really interesting about that is like imagine we were like a thousand times more intelligent and that we could actually you know, we're looking at, at the options for groceries and we're like, that'd be cool. Well, you know, and, and, and it, 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 it becomes, imagine you're so intelligent that it's not paralyzing to look at the apples and be like, definitely should get apples rather than pears. Cause I could see the way that it affects the economy and yeah. the environment <laughs> right. all the way down. And the, like this country's, you know, GDP would help improve this quality of life for the next generation. Yeah. Like, yeah right. But yeah, no, it would be actually really cool, and I hope that if we are able to augment our intelligence as a species, that might be a way that we can start thinking about everything. Mm -hmm. But I've had to like let myself off the hook for like you know just being like I don't have that capacity. Yeah, <laughs> and I, like, pretending that I do or trying to force myself to do that is going to make me like exhausted and miserable, and I'll never be able to make decisions. Yeah, just being decisive and. But you were saying in the hypothetical where you are a thousand times smarter? Then then I guess, I mean, we'd, we'd make very, very different decisions, probably. Like, um, I'm, you know, it, it's unlikely that, like, the most effective thing that I can be doing with my time is podcasting. <laughs> but it's, like, my favorite hobby. So I, I like it. Yeah. And I, I like it enough that I'm going to do that instead of... Uh, 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 I don't know, trading stocks and donating the proceeds to an effective charity or whatever. Like, so, um, uh, 
and I just think it's an issue, your point is interesting how like it, like your level of intelligence actually has implications for your actions in a very real way. Your um, capacity for being altruistic or mm-hmm. maybe maybe have... not even altruistic, but just like from a utilitarian standpoint, yeah. Uh, mm. Maybe if you had a high enough level of intelligence, you would factor in things like I need time to myself to enjoy life, to mm-hmm. keep going, and... And that is why I have time set aside for podcasting. Rather oh my than... god, I'm trying to do that myself. It's actually really hard if you're like someone who's a workaholic for anxiety reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sorry, this is something that's come up in the guild a bit, actually. And um, I want to get you guys' take on it, actually, because I think it's interesting and very relevant to like a lot of less wrong slash EA people is when I'm using the word utility... In, in context of utility valuation over my preferences or maybe the preferences of like my company, it's a subjective first person or, or at least local way of evaluating utility. This is completely different word from when an effective altruist uses the word and they say, I'm going to maximize the utility of those people over there. Hmm. And you can't, you, within, within decision theory, you can't maximize I can't maximize your utility. utility. I don't know your yeah. utility. And anyway, you can't add up the utility between people. That's nonsense within decision theory. And people don't even know their own utility. Wait, like, do people actually say, I want to maximize someone else's utility? Th- they say stuff like, I'm going to maximize global utility. I mean, that, I've, I've seen people you... repeatedly use the word utility as though it were something objective. I mean, if we're, if we're doing the whole swap out of using preferences instead of utility, you can kind of say, I'd like to maximize global preference satisfaction among humans that kind of makes sense right but even that is weird because like you get into friendship is optimal type stuff mm-hmm. i mean yeah. like those people all are like super happies mm-hmm. like wireheading right, right, right. <laughs> again changing well, their preferences directly because they're easier to satisfy when well, you make and like simpler. utility monsters or just utility conflicts like you know Inyash really wants to murder me. I really don't want to be murdered, but Inyash wants to murder me more than I want to not be murdered, right? So, like, that maximizing everyone's preferences tends to leave some people murdered, right? Mm-hmm. That's. Do you think there's any hypothetical reality where someone wanting to murder someone can be a stronger desire than someone wanting <laughs> not to be murdered? Yeah, I... If you're suicidally depressed and well, the other person really hates you. <laughs> I, I was My first example was going to be rape, but that felt like somehow, you know, the idea of you murdering me is is less uh, um, emotionally evocative than talking about a hypothetical rape. But, like, I'm assuming the rapist really wants to rape somebody, right? Sure. But, but I, I mean, guess probably not as much the person doesn't want to be raped. Well, I don't know. I think I have a very strong prior about people not wanting to be murdered, though. Right. I, I think that is, like, I can't imagine, aside from maybe in suicidal, yeah, people, uh, a case where someone's desire to murder you could be higher than your desire to not be murdered. An easier example than burgled you know like you want my stuff more than i want my stuff well i mean isn't that why we have taxes uh i kind (laughs) of like i think we've actually had this discussion as a society and come down on the side of some people should get burgled because the utility (laughs) is higher for the well burgle's not the correct term but 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 we've come we've come to a kind of detente i would say i don't i don't know if that's so so like the thing is i think that parfit's hitchhiker and, and omega and 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 new comes from I think all these things are 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 fun to think about, but kind of silly and and not applicable. But I think the repugnant conclusion in in utilitarianism is is a knockdown defeating argument against the idea of global utility, because that is the the continuation of this idea, the idea that if if it's the best 
to have the if it's best to maximize global utility hmm. then the most moral thing you can do is have the maximum number of people existing at existing lives that are just good enough that they would rather be alive than be dead well i think you poisoned the well by calling it the republican conclusion <laughs> what if this is the glorious wonderful conclusion that we can all help the world be as good as possible by having as many children as possible up until the point where those children will be sadder being alive than dead that, that, that's getting into like it feels like you're kind of trying to drag us back into thought experiment land and i'm wanting to just <laughs> well, he my just feet called really it the repugnant conclusion when it could I be mean, the wonderful conclusion can i just call it like I, I think utility theory gets really stupid when we start talking about utilities like substituting for preferences or for goodness or happiness yeah. so this is fulfillment etc because those are complicated things right. but let's see here's the thing here's why i love plain old vanilla boring decision theory with boring silly first person utility is i want you guys to be happy that's my preference yeah I'm not maximizing your utilities. Right. I'm maximizing my utilities because I want you to be happy. Yeah. And I'm not going to sacrifice my firstborn for you, but <laughs> but I'll I'll go out of my way to to make you happier on the margins when I possibly can because you're my friends and I care about you. Okay. Secondborn, kind of more that, on the edge. Yeah, we'll, we'll yeah we'll see. Um, <laughs> but 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 like that that's the thing is this is not a psychopathic selfish thing to say. This is how everybody operates all the time. And it drives people crazy when they convince themselves that they're responsible for other people's utilities. Like, no, you're responsible for yourself. And if it makes you happy to make other people happy, then you should do that. But don't don't get in this snarl. Don't get wrapped around the axle and start thinking that you are you need to subjugate your own happiness to to the global happiness. That doesn't even work. Like, it just makes people have breakdowns. Yeah, they just burn out, and then they're not able to contribute to anyone's utility function <laughs> but i mean part of the reason that uh you want us to be happy that it makes you happy is because you have been indoctrinated in society to feel good when other people are happy when your friends are happy maybe it's, indoctrinated. It's still like saying that you know morals are subjective right i, I, think, I that... think they are i think that part of the point of society is to make the people that it brings up become happy when they make other people happy Mm -hmm. but it genuinely does make me happy it's not like i'm just pretending yeah right. So, yeah. that's great it so, worked <laughs> and yeah. i'm glad it worked i'm glad it worked on me too i feel happier yeah. when other people are happy and that makes a whole virtuous cycle yeah but but i don't see a problem with that yeah no me neither yeah, okay yeah, yeah. Good. i think yeah. it's a good thing yeah okay <laughs> all right uh we are back after taking care of uh various biological utility functions of ours <laughs> um and uh we briefly started talking about torture and dust specs which i'm not sure how that's necessarily related to decision theory but uh it seemed something that matt and jace really wanted to get into so go for it what is what is the thing that you guys want to say uh, should we briefly describe the torture versus aspects thing? Do you think? May as well. Yeah, it's been a lot number of episodes. Yes, yeah, it's, it's just the idea that uh, if you follow this cockamamie, um, <laughs> um, valuing other people's utility as if you can do that in a consistent way, thing, um, then it's better to uh, torture somebody for fifty years than it is for. Uh, everyone on earth to have some mild annoyance at having dust specks in their eyes yeah i yeah. would like to caveat that it's not everyone on earth because that probably is not nearly enough utility it is so many thinking beings that it uh dwarfs the number of particles in the universe like there would be 
more sentient beings by large orders of magnitude that feel this annoyance than there are even individual atoms in the entire observable universe. Right. And, they don't uh, have eyes. Well, I this this <laughs> They'd is... have to have like a small ear itch or <laughs> see that like yeah like I, I'm laughing at it because this is a stupid thought experiment. That right, doesn't right, right. Match reality at all. Well, well, but the point is that a tiny utility multiplied by a big enough number would outweigh uh, a single solid set number like the amount of disutility of being tortured for 50 years but, but that's so, so that's the thing is to me that's that's like an admission that this is not number one the way people think mm. and number two not the way people should think either because it's definitely admission it's not the way people think i think the should part is more controversial which is well, why it's controversial yes but that's the, the, the there is i think that we should not just say shut up and multiply Okay, I think that that is not. That's more likely. Maybe okay. Here's the thing. Maybe if we were way way smarter than we are, mm. then shutting up and multiplying might make sense. And the reason is, then you would actually catch all of the ways in which uh, there are you know knock on consequences. For example, you're the kind of person who would subject someone to torture for fifty years. What are the implications of that? Right. In terms of people trusting you. In terms of uh, how you feel about yourself in terms of the the consequences to the society that you live in, knowing that that it's basically omelas. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, that's that that requires a much b- bigger process of decision making than just like, well, do we torture the guy or do we do we do the the dust specs? Because um, it is at least implied that the the this is to meant to apply to super intelligent AIs, though. That that is. To implied. the extent that it's implied that that's what everything in Lesserung is ultimately about. <laughs> yes. But, but I mean, Eliezer's, he, he, he's literally saying that that's the right choice, though. Yeah. Right? So yeah. so that's that, that's where... But you disagree. I, I, I do, too. I think I, it's idiotic. Okay. I would never torch, I would never push that button. I would push the put dust specs in, in, in heptillion eyes. I, I agree with you that I'm pretty darn certain I would also never push that button and do the dust specs button instead. But... I think that maybe I should push that button, even if I wouldn't actually do so, because I couldn't live I with myself. I have two things to say about it. Yeah. May I? Please. First of all, I wear contacts and have allergies, so I kind of always have minor eye irritation going on, and it's not a big deal. <laughs> like, you, you get used to it. Right. And I feel like if I were to, like, use a VR immersive thing to show, like, individual sentient beings... Here's what it feels like to have like annoying contacts or a little bit of dust in your eyes. Here's what it feels like to be tortured. Yeah. yeah. And then like take a vote th- throughout like all sentient beings that you would need to make this stupid calculation. Yeah. I think that they're like it would the choice would just definitely be like no, don't like torture a dude, you know, like unless there's I don't know species of sociopath somewhere, but I mean, I absolutely agree with you. That that was also one of the arguments but, I made. But then like the other thing is that you're assuming that there's something called a utilon that's right. like an in, like you can make integers out of values or like pain or pleasure and that's insane. Well, there's certainly a for, little for bit several of... reasons. Like first of all, how the hell do you know what one individual unit of pleasure is? and like make that universal and then also utilons assuming that like they exist and they're not just a stupid concept they like my utilons exist in my own experience we're not a hive mind so a universe where like one guy is being tortured <laughs> like you can't add up the number of utilons and say well this one has more utilons than this one mm-hmm. because the utilons indiv- 
they exist in the individual's mind. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the strongest argument against <laughs> like it. One yeah. is like, oh, this is a better universe. According right. to who? I mean, <laughs> there, there's also the idea that that I think like there's the, there's this sleight of hand where suffering is equated to pain, and and it, it's like. I, um, yeah, that that leads to wireheading. Yeah, like like I, I think I think briefly getting something in my eye is qualitatively different from being tortured. Mm-hmm. Like like it's even qualitatively different from like having to get a shot, which is <laughs> which is not torture. Yeah. Um, but but it's like the, the idea that you're just going to attach a number to these things and and scale them. It's like that's just a this is not real. <laughs> this is not real. Like like that, that that's what I want right. to try to get through is like the idea that that you that. Number one, everyone, everyone's uh, uh, subjective states can be assigned an objective number, and then you can just perform arithmetic on those numbers and get meaningful answers. I'm just like, no, no, you can't. And if you could, then I think Eliezer would be right. Yeah. My contention is not that some massive number times some small number might not be bigger than one times some medium number can i make a tortured <laughs> i'm sorry for the phrasing can i make a tortured analogy that which, was a great pun you just did a pun <laughs> that's not a pun <laughs> and also you will notice i apologize specifically <laughs> uh before, that, before you do it i gotta just say the, the whole, the whole dirt in your eye thing all i could think of is some spider-man from spider-man 3 <laughs> i'm gonna put some dirt in your eye <laughs> it, that, that i heard that in my head at least four yeah. times in the last two minutes and yeah. now everyone else has too it, i mean can we just dub that in somewhere possibly this isn't this isn't that shows so i was gonna do that but... uh-huh. <laughs> he did say if you don't care about dust specs imagine something else that's slightly painful like a shot or something but l- l- that's not where i was going I've met very poor people before. Uh, I remember being very poor for at least a small, tiny part in my life. And $100 would make a huge difference mm-hmm. to uh, someone like that. Really, just helping them get through another week is can be a huge relief to have that $100. And I have spent my entire life working. Uh, I know you have too, up until very recently. Uh, and it's working is a lot of work, especially <laughs> when you do it for many decades. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I have a certain number in my bank account which represents the entirety of my productive efforts of of my life since not even since before I was an adult. Because in theory, schooling was uh, building up capital so that I could do better work when I was an adult. So all my human efforts, uh, a lot, a large portion of human human efforts, are tied up in that number in my bank. And uh, we have decided that for some people, you can take their life, uh, what they've been working on with their life, and give it to the poor people because they need it more, that that number means more to them. And I actually agree with this. Uh, I do think redistribution of wealth is good in, in to a certain degree. But like, that's literally what you're doing. You're saying that this uh, this amount of pain to you of ten thousand dollars let's say or whatever it means less to you than it would if it was distributed into one hundred dollar increments to all these people isn't this, this what if a everyone in the universe kind of had thing? to give one penny yeah uh, and like save one poor person or choose to be better off by each keeping their one penny right like i think that it would be the same thing where it's like no don't torture the guy or in this case Yes, give up the pennies. Like... I, I do think it's exactly the same thing, and the, the it's problem the inverse be... thing. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, well, I mean, the the problem also becomes then, like, if there's more than one poor person in the world, how many how many times are you going to take one penny from everyone? I think that's why this uh, scenario was proposed in the first case. How many of such uh, torture for dustbag trade offs are you willing to make before you start saying, "Oh, actually, you know what? 
maybe this was a bad idea because all these dust specks in aggregate have a horrible effect. Uh, but they don't to the individuals. Like, because like sure, we're not a hive mind, like, so the amount of how many mild inconvenience doesn't add up across like a planet, and then like you can give it negative four hundred Eudelons planet, right? You like, know, because the planet's not a hive mind. They're not like individuals aren't experiencing the full amount of that. That's not how it works. Like I, I see what you, I see what you mean. I mean, I, I think there, there's a lot of intuitions that come into play, and some of which like cut in different directions because. Um, May, you know, maybe you have one answer to the question of like, would you give up a hundred dollars happily to to save the life of of someone? But then, like, that doesn't imply that you would give up, um, you know, a hundred thousand dollars to save a thousand lives, yeah. because it's just a different calculus. Like, there, maybe there's some smaller number of of, or, or sorry, some 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 larger number of lives. Maybe you know, and, and that's again, that's like isn't your the implication that if you would give up the one hundred thousand, the one hundred, you should give up the one hundred thousand. It. it that no? that's where i that's where i object and even according to um normal decision theory your 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 evaluation of money is not linear with yeah. respect to different quantities like you don't there's no reason why you should value a hundred uh a hundred thousand dollars exactly 100 times more than you value a thousand dollars it doesn't uh, it doesn't have to be that way and it is indeed not that way it's just just based on people's decisions and, and revealed preferences we observe that they don't behave that way yeah and people have different values and preferences like you mentioned both money and something like a shot mm -hmm. i give myself a shot in the leg once a week mm -hmm. for hormone replacement therapy uh and i am okay with like giving myself a shot in the leg every week yeah it's worth it for what you get for what i get mm -hmm. and like i i don't value money as much as some other people i like having enough to live off of but i consistently take jobs that are pretty low pay because i like the work mm -hmm. whereas other people would make a different decision so you can't say that, like, that. that's why I start to run into, like, what's, a, you know, a single utilon of selfishness or, like, pleasure. It, it just doesn't, you, you can't, like, go into the brain mm -hmm. <laughs> and be like, okay, you can't pull a number out of it. Yeah, it, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not something that you could track. You could track, like, money, so, like, the... Isn't there some level, though? Like, $100,000 might not be worth a thousand lives, but... What if it would save 20 million lives? I'm not trying to shit on utilitarianism or consequentialism. I think that they are, like, pretty advanced moral philosophies as compared to, like, you know, deism or whatever. Mm -hmm. But that there also is this point where you get repugnant conclusions if you bring in fake units and then try to pretend that they are real and ma map onto reality. Mm -hmm. You can think about utilons as a thought experiment, but it doesn't map re onto reality. Yeah, it, it's more for me, like... Um... It's useful for thinking about things where, like, okay, like I have these resources that I'm that I've decided I'm going to give to charity. How best to use these resources? Oh, there's this thing called EA that that has done all of this work to determine, in some sort of commonsensical, straight-faced sense, where this is going to do the most good. And you can use the word increase the level of utilons if, if you want, and and I could even be fine with that. But um, the idea that like you need to be changing the way your your whole life operates to maximize this number, I'm just like, well, well, no, like like the, the, I think that's not even coherent with like within its own stated terms because if you take that in a sort of Rawls veil of ignorance sense, then it means that everyone should be living their life in such a way that they're just totally self abnegating to maximize everyone else's utility, and then everyone's miserable. And that's not the way I, I don't want other people to live that way. I don't want other people to be sacrificing for my sake. 
Hmm. Certainly not beyond the point that it makes them unhappy. So uh, it it's not where it becomes useful is is like the 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 old chestnut from I think it is in the sequences actually where he talks about uh, people are willing to donate fifty bucks to save a uh, hundred pelicans and they're willing to donate 50 bucks to save 10,000 pelicans. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, well, so, so once you notice that fact, it's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Does, does that mean that I should be willing to donate more money to save more pelicans? What does that mean exactly? Cause I think the naive interpretation is like, well, obviously you should be willing to save more, to donate more money to save more pelicans. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, maybe I just have 50 bucks and I like pelicans. Like, like, do I have to, do I have to be, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think, I think that we tend to draw overly confident and far reaching conclusions from some of these things is what I'll say there. Yeah. And also like, we don't have objective morality either. I like the, the flip side of what you're talking about, Matt is like the, the wire heading thing where I also object to that because if you think you're like, okay, like, a good universe is where we minimize pain and maximize pleasure. But for me, like, I wouldn't want to stick a wire in my head that would just pump, you know, orgasmatron or whatever we were calling it before. Mm-hmm. Because, like, the things that bring me pleasure are solving hard problems, for mm-hmm. example, or, yeah. like, helping others. Uh, and I would not be able to do that if I was just blissed out on orgasm- on the orgasmatron. And so, like, that's not actually maximizing my values, Pleasure does not equal values. Yeah. <laughs> you are not a mon- monomaniacal utility monster focused on one thing. Mm-hmm. And like people don't even know their own preferences. Where like there's a lot of studies that show what actually makes people happy are things like you know uh, donating to charity or doing like volunteer work. Uh, but like when you're and I know because I've been going through periods of like apathetic depression or anhedonic depression. Like it feels like you're I, I'm in this state where like I, I can't actually imagine anything that would make me happy right now mm-hmm. i'll never feel happy again if you like picture i don't know eating a cheeseburger and you're like meh or like giving to charity or you're like meh petting a dog eh. <laughs> mm-hmm. but like I... the, the, there, there's actual like science of happiness that shows that it's not really what you would expect give it like winning the lottery doesn't yeah, make you happy yeah. or like getting more money beyond a certain like area of maslow's needs uh, maslow's hierarchy but it turns out if you go and force yourself to pet the dog, it actually does make you happy. Even yeah. Even though you wouldn't have thought that. You couldn't predict it, though, when you're in an anhedonic, depressed state. Mm-hmm. I guess to bring it back to our topic, what you're saying is that there is no decision theory, at least no good decision theory, you think, that would find uh, that having an agent push the torture button would be a better decision than push the uh, dust specs or shots button? Um, I mean, if you if you just used, like, decision theory with with the implication that all okay let me let me be very precise about how i say this because when you give an agent a decision theory it is by definition going to be a first person subjective decision theory because it's just some code sitting on a computer mm-hmm. and all the agent has is its own inputs and outputs to to learn from um and then you say, and then you further say okay we're going to impose on your utility function that you value you know, all sentient beings equally and you've and and here's this equation where you calculate how many negative utilons are created by this amount of subjective, uh, sorry, not subjective, this amount of of observed neurological pain correlates, mm-hmm. and th- here's how many utilons are created by this many observed correlates of neurological pleasure correlates, which they don't actually know because they can't ever know how much actual pain and actual pleasure, how much suffering, etc. And then and then you say, okay, your job is to maximize 
the pleasure correlates in a, in a global sense and minimize the suffering correlates in a global sense. Like that's that agent probably probably would push the torture button. But you think it's a bad decision agent the um, decision theory that led it to make that decision. I feel like that's almost a paperclip maximizer to the extent that if you make an agent that is just like maximize the total number of utilons per universe or whatever, mm-hmm. and it's not like taking into account the fact that utilons are like you know the subjective experience of individuals then i don't know like i was just thinking again about like friendship is optimal um that's even that's one of like a possible utopia scenario but like if you really think about it spoilers i guess uh the ai they created a princess celesti ai (laughs) from the my little pony franchise who was given the uh you know grand like ultimate purpose of maximize everyone's values as much as possible through friendship and ponies and what that actually led to was most people were living in self-contained universes full of other ais because it would lower people it was not like people's preferences to interact with other actual people Mm -hmm. they would make a universe full of fake people that like were the kind of people they wanted to hang out with Mm -hmm. like is that optimal and then like consuming all the matter in the universe to keep cranking out more uh ponies and like more fake ponies and fake universes and like it led to things like uh the characters were they they would only reproduce if there was a wanted child and then they also found out well child rearing actually isn't that it doesn't really maximize values that much so they would have like children that would be fully adult in like 7 years cuz that that was the maximum amount of time that people would want to be do- like doing child care mm-hmm. and then like the ai started hacking people's brains to change their preferences if they were being too stubborn about, like, for example, there's one dude that was just like, ponies are girly, and I hate being a pony. And then, like, she had to, like, go through this, like, crazy manipulative thing of making him, like, exist in a universe where everything was perfect except everyone was a pony. And he realized that his own misery about not being a pony was what was holding him back from being happy. So he, like, voluntarily let her edit his brain so he loved being a pony. That sounds like an uplifting moral. I don't know, like that. That's where I start to just be like, I like don't know if this is good. The uplifting moral is the beatings will stop when morale improves. <laughs> they started. I uh, mean, it is built as a horror story. <laughs> it's yeah. sort of a horror story. It's weird because it's like I could almost see this being a utopia, except when you actually like think about the implications of, for example, like I realize that if I can hack everyone's brain to increase Dunbar's number, everyone could have more friends, and then they could have more happiness through friendship and ponies. That actually sounds great. <laughs> Paperclip the I'd universe love to have more ponies. friends. I know, like, again, I, I also still am not sure whether this is a utopia or a horror story. Well, that's, I think, that, that, that yeah, well, that's why it's a fantastic moral story to talk about. But, like, I think the part about it that's horrifying to me is that you don't have the option of being, like, no thanks. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's this, that, that that's the dangerous thing about, you know, if, if you give the, if you give Omega all of this power and, and you give it this utility function of maximizing pleasure, it's like, well, you've now abdicated any control over what that looks like, actually. Mm-hmm. And if Omega decides that, that that looks like something that you currently find abhorrent, he's just going to cram you right into that shape and make you decide that you like it. And I mean, isn't and then you're that, not you anymore. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that the ultimate fear of general AI? That once it's mm-hmm. created, it has ultimate power? So yep. um, let's make sure it doesn't do the whole cramming thing that we're worried about. I would say yes, and I, and and that's you know I would say one way of framing what what the whole friendly AI alignment discussion is is to say like hey we probably need to enable the AI to have some very solid conception of what humans actually care about or in less wrong speak model the human utility function mm-hmm. which I don't think that 
exists, but but make it legible. Make it something legibility. Yeah, just 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 generally make it so that we avoid futures that we would just find repellent from where we're sitting right now. Yeah. And um, I feel like just kind of naively cramming the the. the uh, Utilitarianism. In the universe with ponies that you could be friends with. Yeah. <laughs> so is the idea that trying to apply this decision theory that we're thinking about AIs with to humans is a bad idea and people have been doing that too much? Or is the contention with how decision theory is presented, period? Um, I, I think the, my, my problem, my, my pet peeve, is the, the, the constant conflation between utilitarianism, which is the idea that uh, you should navigate your own personal ethics by other people's level of utility mm -hmm. versus just having a first person subjective decision theory where your utility values are your utility values because they are a measure of your, your personal preferences and you're allowed to have selfish personal preferences and there's nothing unethical about having selfish personal preferences uh, intrinsically. Um, so, you know, I mean, again, like it, in some sense, it's probably irrational to be willing to spend fifty dollars to save a hundred pelicans, and 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 and, and then also fifty dollars to save ten thousand. Mm -hmm. Like that's you wouldn't do that if you were if you like knew, if you had more information or whatever, or infinite money, or infinite money, or or whatever. But but like in 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 the day to day, um, I don't think that I don't think the implication of that is like therefore you need to uh, give away all your money right now. Yeah. <laughs> um. I don't think I'm straw manning because so many people get uh, uh, really, I mean, harmed, frankly, by the idea that they should live that way. Right. right. Yeah. I was just rereading, or maybe it came up in a recent Astral Codex, uh, but like a couple of Scott's essays talk about this, where he's talking about like the book Atlas Shrugged and like realizing that, man, what? Uh, I think it was a new article that referenced two of his older ones that actually talk about these topics. While you do that, I did have something that might. One of the things that I considered with like those scope neglect questionnaires again like the pelicans or whatever the oil covered I, I remember it was something like that right how much money would you give to you know this oil covered bird relief thing mm -hmm. and if you're calling a bunch of houses in similar socioeconomic statuses they're going to have something like the same ballpark amount of money that they can comfortably give to charity right it doesn't it it strikes me as bizarre that the expectation would be that oh well it should scale linearly mm -hmm. i mean it should scale some maybe right you know maybe i do have 500 theoretical dollars i could give but i'm only going to give 50 to pelicans um mm -hmm. the, i think the i mean and i don't think anyone is ever silly enough to say it should go up as a multiplier of the number of birds because i don't have fifty thousand dollars to throw at bird problems right mm -hmm. um i think the the more like uh at least as far as scope neglect this is kind of just air filling but um is uh you get people from similar, you know, financial backgrounds and then say, you know, give them a compelling story about one kid who needs money and then that one kid and her brother and then that one kid, her brother and their family. And like people give less money in the last case than they mm -hmm. do in the second case and more money in the first case than in the second case. So those yeah. ones, you know, are weird. But again, if it, it should never go down anyway, right? It, it, maybe it should, maybe it should stay at the, stay the same depending if how much money you have, but the n number shouldn't go down depending on how big the problem is. So I mean, I, I'm actually kind of willing to to tackle that. Um, not that I have like super strong feelings about it, but uh, this is one thing that I was thinking about a lot as we were doing the decision theory course because the part that we haven't talked about at all really is the fact that uh, you know decision tree is basically marrying your utility evaluations over outcomes with your 
with your predictions over over possible likelihoods of different outcomes. And the, the decision that you take is going to be based on a combination of your preferences and your probabilistic prediction of, of what's probably going to happen. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, the more intelligent you are, the more like refined your probability estimates are going to be, um, which is one thing to implications to what you were saying about, about intelligence um, and, and how that would change things. Um, just intelligence and practice too. Like you mm -hmm. can get better calibrated by just making more predictions and then seeing how good they were mm -hmm. yeah yeah calibration is is super super critical and we, we spent a whole week on this in the course actually but but to, to speak about the idea of like if you're going to give money to like one kid versus like a family maybe you have some priors that say oh if i give this money to a family then they're not going to use it as intelligently they're going to waste it and they're going to squander it. versus if i just give it to this one kid who i can clearly see their problems and i can see how that money could be spent productively in a very simple straightforward way then i have very high confidence that that would lead to a high impact like resolution of a specific problem um, i'm not saying that's even necessarily correct i can just see that people might have biases maybe maybe rational maybe irrational biases where it's like the bigger group of people that I throw this money into, the more likelihood it just gets kind of sucked up by, you know, some asshole. <laughs> There's a really interesting, like, I don't know, uh, correlates from that, or I I'm thinking about a... There's There were these studies that showed that if you just give poor people money, or like that, you know, um, even like, say, a poor family gets a paycheck, they tend to... Inst they, they, they save money less, they don't invest, they will, like, spend the paycheck uh, on... A bunch of groceries or like whatever um and f at first like sort of the takeaway from that is that like we need to teach people how to like be better at money and then the more sociologists looked into it they realized that if like okay dude gets a paycheck if he it starts saving money like in in a poor community uh inevitably all that money is going to end up like being taken like uh your brother-in-law broke his knee and needs money or like you know your kid needs to go to like I don't know. It's just like, yeah. as a poor person, you learn that if you have money, you spend it so you don't have it anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you actually like use it for the things that you want. And as it actually you... does end up like kind of being a better decision theory than the other thing, or at least there's the more complicated shit going on there. Because yeah. yeah, as a poor person, you're constantly surrounded by infinite wells of need, which will take all your excess money if you have any, which sucks. Mm -hmm. I liked your, your response to the inverse giving of like number of people versus how much you give i think that makes a lot of sense i can imagine 50 bucks you know would put this little girl through school for a year or something right what's 50 bucks going to do for eight people like mm -hmm. you know th and there's an answer to that but it, like i can see like a naive kind of like just quick run through on a you know phone questionnaire mm -hmm. you'd be like i don't know what's you know how much could i give i you know I'm trying to just well, they also verbalize like that, kind uh, of the, the quick random heuristic that one might use, but I think I see what you're saying and it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, they also find that charities that like uh I'm trying to remember I can't remember the name of this charity, but there's one that lets you pick like a, a here, like you you'll do like this pack or this pack and it's like if you spend twenty dollars you can buy this family a cow and then they show by having a cow that means they can have dairy uh, they can sell the dairy and make some money for the family. They can make cheese. And, like, if you do, like, $40, you can buy a new pair of shoes for all the children in this family. And, like, people are, like, like you know, much more inclined to give if they see that, like, and can understand the concrete thing, like, the good that that will be causing to these specific people. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas, like, yeah, it, 
probably is still helpful if you spread that $50 across the village, but it, it doesn't feel as impactful to you or maybe them. Yeah, totally. I wasn't <laughs> I wasn't advocating that one ought to give less to more people, to be perfectly clear. Mm-hmm. I was I just saying I can, t- I can now better understand why people might give an intuitive answer that leans that way. Um, yeah. So you said, um, pull back to, pulling back to the Discord, that uh, that just the first step is identifying your relative preferences mm-hmm. and then applying decision theory to those to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Is that, um, I guess that's what you're trying to, what you're trying to say decision theory is. It's a way to um, combine facts with what your preferences are to help you decide what to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's what I would call at least the practical form of it. I mean, there's definitely you know, way more like academic ways of phrasing things. But I think my favorite example that came out of the course was, was somebody's kind of test problem uh, that they that they brought in because they didn't have like a serious life problem. They were just like, should I get a haircut? Mm-hmm. Which I thought was delightful because it's like, wow, that's such a such a neutral kind of kind of light thing to think about, but it still has all of the features. I think that... it's nice to start on low stakes things for people just getting into it too. It's true. Because then you get more practice with you know, being better calibrated about what your preferences are and mm-hmm. what your probability of getting X, Y, or Z is. Yeah. Uh, without having to like have the anxiety of, do I change jobs? Do I break up with my significant other? You mm-hmm. know? <laughs> yeah. If I'm learning to drive, I'll kind do of... it at five miles an hour in yeah. a parking lot, right? Not mm-hmm. on the freeway. So. Yeah. And, and even that one, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting because you have to use your own judgment. Like there's no magic bullet. You have to use your judgment about like, okay, well, like what are the bounds of this thing that I'm considering? Because, um, you, you can say, okay, you know, what are the possible outcomes? Okay. Possible outcome. Number one, I get a haircut and it looks great. Um, okay. Number two, I get a haircut and it looks terrible and I really regret it. Okay. Number three, I don't get a haircut. It continues to grow out and I'm actually happy with long hair. Or outcome, save some money or something. Yeah. And, and, and then outcome four, um, it grows out and I, and I hate it. Um, and then, and then each of these is associated with, okay, did I pay for a haircut or did I not pay for a haircut? So then there's like, so there's two tiers, there's two distinctions, one of which is the money. And then the other is, do I like the result? Basically. There's also the lost opportunity of once you have cut your hair, there's less you can do with it. Cause there's less hair there. Like it, it takes time to grow it back out again to try something different. Yeah. Optionality it. is also an important factor yeah whether or not you make permanent decisions or you make ones that keep options open and and, the, and that's the thing is you, you you have to kind of sit with it and you know especially if it's an important decision really consider stuff like you know okay well long hair but i have the option to cut it at any time or i could just shave it um uh versus getting a haircut and being unhappy with it and then i and then I'm stuck with it. Or, or, or again, you could just shave it. So that's the thing. You you really have to, depending on how important it is and how much kind of subtlety there is to it, you need to think through all these implications. Someone in the Discord also pointed out like, hey, like, you know, it's not like you have total freedom in your choices because what if you get such a bad haircut that your boss is like, you can't come into work with that hair, you know, yeah. <laughs> which which it's like, okay, well, that's, then I would say, look, that's probably a very low likelihood outcome. Shouldn't have shaved that swastika into your hair. Shouldn't have shaved that swastika <laughs> in your hair. So maybe you want to put some thought into not going to the swastika barber. Um, um, but, but like, so, so you have to use your common sense and your sort of like calibrated world model on uh, just like, what do you, what do you think's probably going to happen? And what are the odds of actual catastrophe bleeding from this haircut and, and so on. Um, and and that risk tolerance to mm-hmm. like someone who's more risk averse mm-hmm. and knows that would mm-hmm. probably want to, um, keep the, you know, 
have the more optionality or the you know the safer choice whereas if you're more risk tolerant you maximize the chances of getting something even better but also there's the risk like how how, how much can you you know tolerate the distress of there being risk involved hmm. yeah well that just goes into how you weight the branches on the tree right yeah yeah mm-hmm. exactly that's the thing you, that, that's yes thank you for pointing that out because it's like a, I sort of posed it as if it were like, and then you're just stuck. It's like, no, you're not stuck. You, you literally think to yourself, like, how, okay, how, how much do I weight the, the, the negative value of getting a really bad haircut? And it's like, okay, what if you're an investment banker and like you could literally, literally could lose millions of dollars if somebody like shakes your hand and they don't like your haircut, you know? It's like, okay, probably need to spend more money on a haircut to make sure I get a very reliable haircut product. Apparently, if you're a politician, it's really important that you have just the right haircut. Mm-hmm. Really? Do you remember when Hillary Clinton was running and all anyone would talk about was her hair? No. And I was just, like, thinking, like, there's really no way to win. Like, it's either too conservative or not, like, huh. edgy enough or it's not age-appropriate or it doesn't look professional enough or it doesn't look real enough. Like, Apparently it's... I don't have those people in my circles because this is the first I'm hearing about it. There was a whole haircut gate. I think the appearance of politicians is actually, like, you know, it, it, you probably heard Trump get, like destroyed over his suits not fitting right also no i don't know know. i mean probably you're better off for not having seen this shit but like the the thing is that actually this is shit that matters to a lot of people and it does affect like how likely you are to be elected i mean maybe it should maybe if (laughs) someone can't get suits that fit him it's a sign of something (laughs) (laughs) maybe no i don't know yeah um I, i i'm trying to remember which which of the which of the politicians it was where it was like a scandal when they revealed how much money he spent on haircuts and it was it was just it, i don't remember who it was probably that bernie sanders maybe maybe okay. bernie sanders does it, he have hair? i remember something about bernie sanders having multiple houses that were expensive oh. and people yelling at him so it could have been a haircut yeah, thing too kind of thing always know. happens yeah 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 but uh but yeah haircuts surprisingly complicated problem but <laughs> you know so, so like the thing is, again, like you, you, you factor in both your, your utility valuation, but then also the, the odds. So like if you're just like the odds are like right now I could get the worst haircut in my life. I work at home. If anything, my kids will see it and they'll laugh. Hmm. And that's a net positive for me, if anything. Right. So like I don't. So, you know, it doesn't matter. But uh, that's something I never considered before. Having kids, a lot of things that would be net negative can turn into a net positive. <laughs> uh uh-huh. Because it ends up your kids take pleasure out of it. Yeah. I mean, when we were in lockdown, I let my kids cut my hair. Uh, and it was they did a pretty good job, except for at like the last second, the four-year-old <laughs> leans in. I'm, 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 I'm showing everyone. And she cuts basically like my entire left side of my bangs off. Oh, no. Like down, down to almost the scalp. You're doing so um, good up until... <laughs> and uh, so I wore hats for a while. but But the thing was, I didn't... I wasn't angry. I didn't feel anything. I was just like, this is hilarious. This yeah. is great. Now I have a story, you know. I uh, near the end of lockdown, I got a haircut and it was really bad. And <laughs> I was sad and it was just negative and there was nothing to it aside from negativeness. <laughs> I should have had a kid, so it could have been good. I just shaved my head so I didn't have to worry about having hair. Yeah. No one could see it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did find the article that I was trying to remember mm-hmm. earlier and I realized it's not a new one. It's... um. Actually, from 2013, the all debates are bravery debates. That's a good one. And the reason I brought that up was that it's Scott sort of talking about um, both the issue of... Well, people say that like the book Atlas Shrugged is bad to read because it encourages selfishness. 
But he's like, there are some people that like have read this book and it actually changed their life for the better, though, because they are the kind of person who was pathologically selfless. Mm -hmm. And then the opposite side, uh, or not really opposite, but also related, the EA community tends to attract the kind of people that like least need to sort of have that kind of mentality drilled into them. Mm -hmm. He runs into people regularly who are panicking about like, I, you know, working two jobs and giving all of my money to charity and I'm trying to ethically source my food and just like, it's like, okay, you're making your own life miserable for like a marginal benefit to the rest of the world. Like very marginal. Did you see his most recent post about if you want kids, you shouldn't let uh, global warming stop you? I think that might've linked to this one or reminded me of it. Okay. That's why I was thinking it was an astral, a recent astral codex, but uh, yeah, it's kind of like the same, like sort of, well, not the same again, like related though, um, Mm. where, it's just sort of morality is subjective and like, yeah, it makes the most sense for you to be the person who is trying to put the weights on your your own decisions. And yeah, I don't know. The, the bravery debates one made me a little sad because it was kind of talking about how like it, it, it's annoying that like the people that least need to read Atlas Shrugged and take away a message you need to be more selfish tend to be the people that are reading it and like vice versa with EA where the kind of people that are already worrying about like whether their food is organic enough <laughs> don't people... really need to be like hearing that you're a bad person if you're not like working yourself to the bone and donating all the money to effective charities. <laughs> people <laughs> almost always prefer to read things that flatter them, which is just the way humans are. Speaking of real quick, um, I... We with the Matrix Four trailer coming out, had mm-hmm. me thinking about the original Matrix again, and I had someone point out to me that one of the great things about the Matrix is that it flatters everybody because its core message is you are special and awesome exactly the way you are. It's the rest of the world that's broken, and if they could just see how awesome you are, everything would be great. <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay, that's fair. <laughs> great fucking movie, but yeah, yeah. The the main point is that Neo rocks, and Neo is the everyman. Uh-huh. It's the the corrupt world that's holding him back, but uh-huh. yeah. It's, Is uh... that the main message? I thought it was more about like free will and autonomy versus living in a wireheading universe, or not really wireheading, but like that's the philosophical grounding to it all. Yeah, but like the main thing when you look at the protagonist, how does the protagonist need to change? Well, the protagonist needs to be more himself. Mm. He doesn't. There was nothing wrong with him in the. Well, the power was in you all along. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. think that can be a good message, and again, it depends on the person hearing it. Like, if it is already like some selfish asshole who does bad things, they can watch it and be like, "Yeah, I don't need to change." Great the way I am. Every human likes to hear that, regardless of people, whether they are, you know. I think good more or people bad. than than not actually could like use more of the the message of like, "Hey, you're fine. Calm down." Yeah. <laughs> like Harry Potter had the same more self love, self esteem in the world. I think would would probably improve the world. Harry Potter that. was great, exactly the way he was. Yeah, <laughs> he just needed to be, you know, un unshackled. This is why people hated the se- the Matrix sequels. Not that I'm standing the Matrix sequels necessarily, <laughs> but um, the Matrix sequels were both just like. Like, actually, we were just fucking with you. Uh, <laughs> Neo is actually a, another tool of oppression and control, and yeah. he's just a, he's he's been fooled, and his powers don't amount amount to jack shit anyway, mm-hmm. in, in the in the grand scheme. And then everybody's like, "What?" <laughs> I mean, I kind of like that aesthetically, or like I, I didn't enjoy the movies as much, <laughs> right? <laughs> and just because, like, I guess they weren't as good movies, or that's uh, one as of the well reasons, or something. But like. Yeah, yeah that, that deconstruction of, of that whole like messiah thing though is yeah more my tastes. Yeah. I think <laughs> that's one of the reasons I tend to like stories about villains mm-hmm. because 
villains are already assumed to have something bad about them and broken that needs to be changed over the course of the story. And that makes them more more fun for me. Mm-hmm. Well, then people are like, why do you like reading horror about terrible people? Like, that's that's not what I'm reading, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I this this is this is always an interesting thing for me is to is to see how many people. I mean, yeah, there's, there's the phenomenon of people reading things with the implicit assumption that this is supposed to be some kind of model of good behavior. It's right, like right. it's like no, I I love my favorite characters are are the ones who are terribly flawed because I can relate to those flaws, um, and it doesn't uh, make me feel bad to relate to those flaws. It makes me reflect on myself. And if anything increases the odds that I'll like notice if I'm behaving that way in the future, like that's the, I think Walter White is a great kind of Rorschach test of a character because a lot of people just think Walter White is awesome and they want to be like him. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, those people are scary. Yeah. yeah. Uh, could well, I like do a, wait, is, is Stephen, were you going to say something? I was going to say there's an aspect to Walter White that I think people really like, some mm-hmm. people anyway, the same thing that makes them like Professor Quarrel. Like, yeah, the competence. Th- this competence. is a badass who gets shit done yeah. and isn't afraid yeah. of nobody, right? Yeah, and strength. And, and, I, yeah. I, I will say that being said, The Matrix is, I think, one of the top 10 best movies ever made. Like, I'm not shitting on The Matrix here. Oh, I, I, it's my favorite movie. It's an excellent yeah, yeah. movie. My, my actual favorite movie, yeah. What were you going to say, Jay? Sorry. Um, I wanted to like do a little pet tangent for like a minute and then I'll shut up about <laughs> that sort of thing where I marathoned Rick and Morty again because uh, yeah. I just went through a shitty breakup and was just looking for comfort food in the form of entertainment but uh oh shit I, I realized that it's like still a, a horrible meme uh, where people like in the comments I don't know why I was reading the comments <laughs> I, I guess because there were some good insights in there about like oh did you pick up the easter egg there etc but that like then there were people just being like no, look, it's about like parallel universes. You have to have a high IQ to understand oh Rick God. and Morty. And I, I just like, I was like, oh, are people still saying that? I remember when like... I think they're saying it as a joke now. I, th- no, they weren't. Like in the comments, <laughs> no. people were trying to say that you're just not smart enough to understand Rick and Morty. In particular, you have to have a high IQ, which is hilarious because I'm like, that's not intelligence. That's intelligence quotient. Honestly, it's thinking... not the same thing. And also, but like the thing is the show, like, are you watching the show? The show itself has an episode, the, the Pickle Rick one, where <laughs> the like he gets his ass chewed out by this therapist for like yeah. your your intelligence has like poisoned your entire family the only thing that like it's really led to is that you all worship intelligence to like the detriment of being a good person or doing the right thing yeah. and it's just this like vicious cycle and then there was another episode where uh like it was, it was like some dumb premise where like demons were hanging out with rick and jerry because they were mm. feeding off of jerry's cringiness yeah but at the end the reveal was like oh you like you, you thought that you know we were here enjoying jerry's cringiness but actually you guys are the whole package because cringe can't exist in a vacuum see you think that you're cool and jerry's lame but the lamest thing of all is thinking that <laughs> And I was just like, are you watching the same show here? Because the the writers themselves are, like, making the point that intelligence doesn't make you a good person. And it's just a tool that you can use. Yeah. But see, so you have a very high IQ, so you know, only you can pick up on that. I guess. <laughs> I think Literally. Rick and Morty is, yeah. I think Rick and Morty is really awesomely viewed as a um, a contemplation of, like, a toxic relationship and breaking up with that relationship where Rick is the horrible toxic person. And everyone else has been drawn into this relationship with him and like 
when Evil Morty left, that was that was his big thing. He was getting out of that relationship with Rick at last. They've shown parallel or you know, alternate universes where Rick didn't exist or where he was different, where the family was perfectly sane and healthy. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah. like, it seems like the common denominator there. Yeah. There's no incest <laughs> baby in space. Right. <laughs> the, the, the Professor Quirrell connection is also obviously there because like Professor Quirrell's awesome. Mm-hmm. He's a murderer. He's a he's like like maybe literally worse than Hitler, but. He's, he's really, at least a really like, cool feeling psychopath. Yeah, yeah. Right. He, he's um, and that's and that's the how many people read that story without ever really coming to terms with that contradiction or that uncomfortable? I mean, probably me, honestly. I was just like, yeah, he's a fun character. I, I kept thinking it was going to be revealed that he was actually like the good guy, or mm-hmm. and Dumbledore was evil. Like, I was actually kind of rooting for that, yeah, and I was too. disappointed when it turned out like, no, he's actually Voldemort. Like, like depends... have you seen all of the signs that he's Voldemort? Like. <laughs> It depends on what you mean by uh, by coming to terms, because like I accept it, I still think it sucks. But sometimes sucky things are true. I guess what I mean is that after you read the whole story, it kind of seems like what Eliezer wanted to do was was show you how easy it is to get taken in by like a charismatic psychopath. Yeah. Um. And 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 fully reckoning with that would be to like sit, you know, quietly by yourself and be like. Okay, what can I do to avoid getting taken in the, the way that this character in this fictional story took me in mm-hmm. and took Harry in? And, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know who does that. And, and, that and, honestly yeah. might be a basis for an episode that we should do because it's I think the not answer that be hard. Yeah, right? Yeah. It's, like... it's not all that hard. But it's a lot. Of, it's a thing that a lot of people just don't do and don't seem to even know how in theory to do. There was mm-hmm. the whole part of the story where... Step number Quirrell one was... is don't move to the Bay Area. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> I know some very nice people in the Bay Area. I know. But like, I, I, was, I was making I, a joke. I, one of my favorite parts of the of Methods of Rationality is when like he tried to corrupt Hermione and he just kept like coming to her in different shapes and forms. Like, I'm the magic wish fairy. She's like, nah, well, I will give you whatever you want. No, thanks. You, you seem kind of evil. Yeah. But uh-huh. like, but I'm gonna give you what you want. Why do you care about that? Because I don't like evil. <laughs> Quirrell was unable to, to to eat her with a troll. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Quirrell due to Quirrell due to his earlier life choices was unable to make that uh that trade with Hermione. He had too boxed in that situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> It was a stretch. <laughs> I don't know if we have anything else on decision theory you wanted to touch on, but I did want to ask real quick, Matt, if you're if you were like in the standard Newcomb problem, would you one box or two box? Um, or would you say this is a stupid <laughs> game and I, I refuse to play it, which I, is totally fine. I mean, I think just within the the description of of the game, I would I would assume that um, if I'm seeing uh, the two boxes with cash, it's it's because he already knew that I was going to take the one box, and so I'm just going to take the one box. And uh, if I if if that weren't the case, then I wouldn't be seeing the two boxes. So um, I would one box. But that's this 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 uh, this never happens in real life. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was my big issue with the two is that you know tell me when this will happen. And you know there were there were nice attempts to like I think give some examples of mm-hmm. problems like that. But mm-hmm. there's nothing like with the future predictor thing. You know, right. Parvitz hitchhiker. It's reputational effects. It's whether you give off an aura of evilness, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's um. We we do a lot of these things intuitively and and unconsciously, I would say, um, and it it's just a very strained way of trying to say, hey, have you ever thought about the fact that we're actually playing iterated games rather than rather than one off games 
in, in most things most of the time. Yeah. Because um, we are. Reputation matters. Yeah. And even if we're not, like way earlier, we brought up the example of you don't dine and dash like because you don't want to ruin your reputation and get blacklisted from restaurants, et cetera. But like you still don't do it if you're just like on a road trip and you mm-hmm. because you go have to the some correct diner. morality installed in you. Yeah, like that generalizes to be good over all situations, even if you know it tells you not to dine and dash when you could get away with it. Yeah, like sort of just internalizing that if I did this, then everyone would do this. It would make the world a shittier place. Like let's just you know. Mm-hmm. Well. <laughs> I mean, for me, it's very—it's probably a lot of like knowing, like like Jean-Luc Picard would would fold his arms and glare at me <laughs> if I did that, and like that's more how I actually navigate morality. <laughs> I think there was a God. I wish I had saved it now. A comment in the Discord along the lines of a lot of uh, what morality is has evolved to be in society is basically uh, getting people to internalize that cooperating in these sorts of. Uh, situations is the best thing overall for society and individually and uh that's that's just what it's trying to do mm-hmm. compensate for for people not having that instinctively inside them i don't disagree i mean that yeah it's kind of what society is about or what culture i guess so matt this yes. is a course that you have taught uh when are you going to be teaching it again how can people take this course they want to make their lives better and you are the tool for that so i'll, I'll just sort of assume that you didn't listen to the previous episode of guild of the rose <laughs> um on guild of the rose and and reiterate that it is a flipped classroom model course and so what that means is um all of the course content um is online in youtube videos and uh, and you can watch it at any time, and you can probably get a good chunk of the value out of it by doing that. But uh, when when we actually go through the course, then that is a more sort of guided experience where you are, if you're in the Guild of the Rose, you're sorted into a cohort, which is a group of about six people, and you will do certain elements of the course assignments together, and um, and and have active discussions of of the of the of the assignments, and so you're not just doing the homework in isolation, but you're doing it in a group, and so you have a chance for people to to give you feedback, and it's just much more productive. And in terms of when I'm teaching again, I don't actually know uh, when the next sort of iteration of that is scheduled to be, because we have a few courses uh, plotted out right now for the guild. Um, so all the material is online, and if you want to consume it, you can do that at your leisure. And if you want to join the guild, then you could join the guild and 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 uh, and say you want to take the decision theory course again, and 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 that might actually make it happen sooner rather than later. If um, enough people say that. If enough people say that, yeah. Cool. Um, and and it's sort of actually designed to be something that a person can go through more than once and get value out of, because at least in my opinion, like like you can never be too good at decision theory. Like you can never be too good at making a decision tree. It's it's the kind of thing. Where, like I thought I had it down before I sat down to make all of the course content. And then I realized as I was going through it, like I kept having to consult the textbook because I was like, wait a second, never really thought about this, never really never really done it this way, you know? And then people would, uh, in, in the course, people would do things and, I, and they'd, they'd ask if like, oh, is this allowed? Can I do this? And I'd be like, I don't know. So that's another way in which it was actually a useful experience because I had to figure that out. So. Learning by teaching is awesome. Yeah. I, I'm sure everyone has discovered this at some point, but you don't really really know something until you've tried to teach it because mm-hmm. that's where it really exposes all the parts where where you didn't quite have the solid grasping you thought you had yeah, yeah. a problem you'd never thought of yeah yeah 
Alrighty, well, that brings us to the end of our episode. Uh, was quite a sprawling discussion, but I fucking enjoyed it. We're going to uh, thank a patron. We are going to thank a patron. Uh, first, we're going to thank uh, Matt for coming on again. This is oh. awesome. Anytime. Thanks, Matt. It's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> this week, we are going to thank a patron who had the correct decision theory when they decided to become our patron. <laughs> because uh, this helps make the entire community better, and I hope that everybody implements this patron's decision theory as well. Uh, Matt, since you're the decision theory expert, please tell us who this patron is. Sean Healy. Yay. Great, Yay, great job on your decision. Yes. A plus. <laughs> <laughs> All the Udalons in the right places there. Thank you very much. It helps to enforce our uh, decision theory to keep doing the podcast because we get more positive Udalons. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> I was just going to say that I felt like I understood decision theory better and then you've gone ahead and just... <laughs> scrubbed all of it but it's not you sean Inyash. yes yes sean is completely blameless <laughs> but yeah thank you for that uh had a great time and we'll see y'all in two weeks bye everybody